five, four, three, two, one. Hi, welcome to the commentary of King Kong. I'm Peter Jackson, the director. And I'm Philippa Boyens, one of the uh, co-writers and co-producers. So we'll try to make this as interesting as possible. We'll try to steer clear of topics and subjects that are covered in the documentaries too. So we'll try to give you some insight into the, uh, the making of the movie from our perspective without going over the same old stuff that you can see in the um, documentaries themselves. The title design is something that we, you know, del were deliberately inspired by the 1933 Kong. Um, I sort of, you know, the film has got a lot of references and homages to the original King Kong. Uh, and I guess that's probably the very first one to mention is the Art Deco-y sort of framing of the titles. We wanted the film to start with a montage of New York in 1933. It was, uh, it was a sequence that I primarily thought was good to have at the beginning to establish the 1933 setting. I, I wanted to sort of make it feel like we're in a different place, different time, what time it is, and, um, you, you know, I didn't really want to, to make the 33 thing a, a big deal at the beginning and have a date or anything else, but I thought it would be fun to sort of show a slightly different world than what people are used to seeing. Familiar, but... Mm. Obviously, it's not contemporary. It's not today. I, and that that particular Central Park sequence came out of that uh, us all being incredibly shocked that actually shanty towns were in the middle of Central Park. We saw a photo. I remember Hoovervilles, they called them. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, it was obviously unemployment and people got thrown out. They couldn't pay their rent. They got evicted, and they ended up there. Were as a big Hooverville in Central Park and another one on the docks. And a lot of this footage that we're seeing here, um, it was shot, you know, obviously by us, but it was based on black and white footage that we got from various newsreels and, and stock footage libraries. Um, should mention that Randy Cook, our second unit director, um, shot some of this, and he in particular shot these recreations of the vaudeville um, acts. And I think we're going to show a few more of these in our um, documentary too, because some of these are really funny. Yeah, and it's, we... the tragedy of it is that when you cut these montages together, you know, a montage is only like a few seconds of this person and that person, and there were some really entertaining performers. So it'll be it's worth just chasing up that stuff because it's very really funny. Yeah. Naomi worked very hard on this sequence. I know. The, um, the song wonderful. that uh, they're actually performing to is a song called I'm Just Wild About Harry, and it's another situation where, you know, when we cut this as a montage, obviously it became very snappy and fast-cutting in a sort of MTV kind of yeah. way, but um, Naomi and Mark Hadlow who, um, and Bill Johnson, who is Manny, the old chap there, the three of them worked on that routine for a long, long time. They rehearsed it and they actually performed like a whole two or three minute, minute routine. And we only could use snippets of it in our montage. Because one of the, the things that we were going to do is to open on the New York setting with the Al Jolson song and then we were going to go to um, the guys performing I'm just, I'm just wild about Harry on stage, mm. you know, and that was two or three minutes long and then go to the dressing room that we're in now and we just felt that uh, that once you were through the montage, we, we just didn't really want the pacing of the film, didn't feel like we, we should have a whole new song um, start at that point. No. Which is why, I mean, I haven't put it in the extended cut either because it just didn't feel like the right thing to do. 
swell out of the nose too. Bill Johnson, um, who plays Manny, is a wonderful old New Zealand character actor. Um, I remember seeing him on New Zealand television shows when I was a kid. Uh, so he was a pleasure to work with. He's one of the nicest guys, yeah. It's great. This alleyway sequence is actually shot indoors. It's inside, and the cars that are driving in the background are CG cars. Um, <laughs> so it looks, doesn't look like an effect shot, but it is an effect shot. I remember this day. You guys were sweltering, weren't you? It was yeah, a very hot day. Uh, in a lot of the, all of this um, New York stuff was shot at the height of summer, and because it's obviously New York, you know, during autumn and winter, it, um, everyone's wearing thick coats, and uh, God, it was hot. Yeah. It was really hot. It's no use. The show, it's over. It's done. The, the New York sequence obviously gets covered a lot in the documentaries, and so we don't really need to talk too much about the technicalities of it here, but um, it was shot on a big set, a big back lot that we built. It was an exterior back lot in an industrial area of uh, Wellington, and the buildings were all built to about a height of 20 feet. And so even in a shot like this where, you know, this stuff where Manny and Anne are talking to each other, you know, most of what you're seeing in the background is visual effects. Um, those buildings are nowhere near as tall in real life as they are there. So, you know, all of these shots that are really simple, dramatic shots of people's faces, close-ups, they're all visual effect shots, you know, which is, it's tricky because it just let your shot count rises. But... Uh, you have to weigh that against building the height of these sets. We just couldn't build that high because you run into all sorts of complications with the structural integrity, with wind loading. You know, once you, if you start building 50, 60, 70 feet up in the air, the complexities of construction are enormous. So um, just couldn't do it. And, I, and yet I didn't want the New York stuff to feel claustrophobic. I didn't want it to feel like a back lot. To me, it was important to get the width and breadth of the New York streets. Yeah. I love what uh, Naomi does here too. They wanted to give the feeling. We played around with a lot of different drafts, the script yes, and we of yes, her we hunger and the backstage. How to make this play. And how to... Um, and introduce this notion of him sending her off to the, uh, to the burlesque theatre. Yeah. There's a yeah. little homage to Ken Cummins in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, Kenny Kay. manager. Our manager, yeah, has been for many, many years. There's lots of little in-jokes. I mean, already, um, as part of the montage, we've seen um, my two kids have been doing cameos and various crew members have been doing cameos. In this scene, we intended to show some of Denim's film and we actually shot a few shots of uh, Jack Black doing a bit of lion taming or tiger taming and um, we were going to do a blue screen composition where he's superimposed into shots of a real tiger and then make it look like black and white footage and um, Kyle Chandler playing Bruce was also going to be there. But we ended up realising that really what the film is that's on the screen is not important and it seemed like an unnecessary level of detail to put in. And we're also, you know, learning all we need to learn by just what their reaction to denim is. It's more yeah. about denim than it is about the film he's shooting. So it was always a bit confusing just what this film is. Is it a documentary? Is it a drama? He's got actors in it, so yeah. therefore it must be some sort of a dramatised film. And, I mean, the film that Denim's making is truly bizarre when you think about all the different things that he ends up shooting throughout but the course of the movie. It's they like had that genre then in those days, didn't they? They had the expeditionary filmmaking. Expeditionary films. And, and they don't make them anymore, Pete. No, they don't. 
They used to do that sort of thing for entertainment, but they were much more titillating and exploitative than what the uh, obviously modern documentaries are. They were sort of, you know, shocking tribal initiation rites and... Mm. Um, hunting animals, they would, you know, actually sh- show you rhinoceroses being shot and hunted for some sort of a cheap titillation and thrill. So it was pre-censorship and uh, and at a time when that sort of stuff wasn't regarded as being as unacceptable as it is today, obviously. I'm talking about a primitive world. This was um, a very early scene that we shot. I, I you know, I keep looking at uh, scenes and remembering them and context of the shooting schedule and and I know that this was I think like on the third day of the schedule um, and yes, it, was. It, it was a it's always a good thing to try to avoid where your actors are having to perform their opening scenes early because mm. I always think it's better to put the opening scenes towards the end when they've fully established their characters and so I, I this was a tough one for Jack and a tough one for me because you know it was one of the very first sequences ever shot and it's his first scene there were so many different ways you could go about it i mean what does denim know what does he actually know about skull island how how much information does he have does he know that there's a big gorilla on skull island you know does he does he know that um there's other creatures on skull island i mean in the original film denim is sort of going after kong from the very beginning you know he knows there's an Mm. island and there's a there's some sort of weird beast god called kong and we kind of skirted around that in our storytelling a wee bit because we felt that it was a bit is basically undramatic, didn't we? Yeah, we did. And also in that scene, you'd see one of the characters that we wanted to base Carl Denham on, who was Orson Welles. Um, you see that coming through and <laughs> Jack picking up on that. Yeah. And one of the things about Welles was his bravado and and uh, recklessness um, as a filmmaker. Um and we loved that idea. And so it seemed right that Denim knew something but didn't know everything. No, and he's first and foremost a filmmaker. He wants yep. to go and he wants to find this island because he thinks it's going to have, you know, yeah. it's an amazing spectacle that no one's ever seen before, but he doesn't have a clue what's on it because there's more drama. If obviously he arrives on Skull Island and he doesn't know what's there, then in our minds it was a more dramatic choice to make. The Orson Welles thing is interesting that you mentioned because uh, one I remember one of the last-minute panics that we had just before we started shooting was Jack's wig mm. because we Jack had long hair obviously when we met him and and, and you know the time immediately prior to our movie and we just assumed that we we would trim his hair you know obviously given the 1930s haircut and we could get it looking like Orson but um, Jack's just got a particular type of, of hair. Quite straight, yeah. Straight, and and, and when we trimmed it, it he, we couldn't get that kind of quafty kind of look that we loved so much from the photos of Orson. Yeah. We really wanted that little curly quaft of hair, and so we we pressed the panic button literally, I think, about three or four days before we started shooting and said, we, we've got to put Jack in a wig. <laughs> and we actually didn't have the wig on our first day of shooting. It wasn't finished yet, and um, fortunately it was a scene at the docks, which, which is coming up, where um, Denim's wearing a hat the whole time. So he was wearing a hat and covering his hair and his lack of wig. And then I think on the second or third day of the shoot, um, probably the investors scene actually in the screening room was the first time that we got the wig finished. And it did help enormously to me. It, it, it really helped him look 
like a 1930s character, you know, it put him in that time and place. Yeah. I can't believe some of the distance you got into these shots. You can just see right down Fifth Avenue. I love um, that. A lot of the people are computer-generated. A lot of the cars are computer-generated. Like, you know, this, this was a scene that we shot inside a tent, this um, the sequence with, with uh, Jack and Colin talking to each other here, we, it was was what's called a wet weather cover set, and we were in the middle of the night shooting in New York at night on our street sets, and um, it started to rain, and we had to retreat because we didn't we couldn't shoot in the rain, and so we we didn't have a building out there. We just had a big tent, and we put the car the taxi inside the middle of the tent, put some blue screens behind it, and the guys spent, you know, all night, like at 3 o'clock in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning, with us in this raining, te- drippy tent, shooting their dialogue in the taxi. Um, that's... <laughs> and th- this scene, we waited till the end of the day because um, Andrew Lesney, our DP, you know, we, we discussed it and we wanted to sort of get that, you know, the feeling of it being late in the afternoon, sort of turning it mm. into night time. And, uh, and so we deliberately um, waited until that time of the day to shoot it in, and especially the wide shots, when you see them in the wide shot, um, we wanted to get that twilight. Mm. That looks incredible. That, that shot there, so that was, you know, you, you often can't, you can, sometimes can't fake the lighting to that degree, especially when you're outside and you're dealing with the sunshine and things, so we... We shot that real time. Our, our New York set, um, to look at it as a plan, it was like a sort of, I don't know how big a you'd say it was, it was like, it was about three blocks long by maybe two, two and a half blocks wide. And it had to do everything that we wanted to do. So we spent a lot of time in pre-production figuring out what, we wanted from our New York, you know, we had mm. to go everything from Times Square to these um, sort of seedy back streets, you know, sort of down, I guess, you know, Lower East Side kind of area, the docks areas and everything. We, we built our, our, our sets so we could move around the same set, use the streets in the background, but um, it would give us every neighbourhood of New York that we needed. That is a tough audience. Now, this scene was had many different versions written of it. Yeah. <laughs> this was rewritten and rewritten. These are hard scenes. It was a really hard scene to pull I up. don't know. They're tricky scenes because it's a lot of exposition and you're trying to have two characters meet each other and, and plus you're explaining a lot of the plot and the story and setting yep. everything up for them as well as the audience. And, and the, there's the, the old homage going in here, some of the original dialogue from the original movie. Yeah. Yeah, that was always fun to do that. Mm. And um, I loved Naomi's hat too. I always thought her, her hat reminded me of Faye Ray so much. It's yeah. not identical to the one that Faye wears in the original, but it's it just you know it's similar and it uh, puts her in that period so well. This was one of the very early scenes too, shot in the first week. Like this is where we were, you know, you can sort of see the the love and attention that Jack's wig is getting here. Yes, it is. <laughs> More so than later on. It's sort of like it was one of his very first outings with his wig. Yeah. You're filming in the Far East. Singapore. This was an interesting costume moment, actually, because uh, Terry Ryan, the um, wonderful costume designer on this movie, had a very specific idea that, that Anne should feel slightly underdressed in this moment, that it's that winter's coming on, but if you look at what she's wearing, that cardigan is very thin, the colour is quite cool, quite cold. 
um, it's almost like this girl just doesn't have enough money for, or she has enough money for one big warm coat and that's it. Mm. That little hat makes her look very vulnerable. Mm. And even the colours, they, they, there was a lot of thought put into that. I think he did a wonderful job. She falls in love. Yes. But she doesn't trust it. I know we had uh, a lot of trouble colour grading this. When you do the colour grading, is at the very end when you adjust the, the, the sort of the colours of the scene, which is a process that, that people don't know, you know, really exists. It's not something that you think about when you see movies, but... Um, you do it in a computer and it's a very, you know, it's a very artful, dare I say, part of the process. You can put a lot, lot of creativity into it. And we wanted this um, this speakeasy or whatever you could call it, this sort of diner, yep. to have a certain, you know, nighttime quality, a certain feel of warmth and, and tungsten orange lighting. And so, but we found that once we started to pump anything remotely orange into the scene. It played havoc with Naomi's eye colour. Ah, she has these lovely... Um, incredible blue eyes. ...clear blue eyes. And once we started putting orange into the colour, it, it really made her eyes look strange. And so we had to do... These were all basically visual effect shots where we had to actually cut out around her eyes and colour time her eyes separately to the rest of the <laughs> shot. Um, it's just... It was very labour-intensive. Um, uh, it's... I just remember these were all sort of last-minute panics because the colour timing is obviously always one of the last things you do at the very end of the film yeah. in the last few days and weeks leading up to the delivery. And um, Not that you had anything else to panic no, about at the time, Pete. No. <laughs> this, they had an amazing rapport right off the bat. Well, this was, their, this was their really yeah. first big scene together, wasn't it? It was in our first week of shooting. Yeah. I lo- I and this is, this is day one. This is our very first night of filming. Um, and in fact, the very first shot that we did is this one here, where Naomi steps out and says, is this the moving picture ship, which is a line from the original. But I remember uh, being very unhappy because we, en- we ended up shooting something like 30-odd takes, which I, I never, ever do. No, I never shoot never 30, 30 takes. And I made a wrong decision of using a crane to shoot the shot rather than a steady cam uh-huh. and it was just a difficult move to pull off on a crane and it wasn't the actor's fault it was actually our we couldn't get the camera to flow smoothly through the arrival of the cab and her getting out and i remember slowly dying on the very first day of shooting or night of shooting or the very first shot and we're doing <laughs> takes 18 19 20 21 and yeah. I, I i thought god this is not the way to start shooting a movie I um, you know and I was just so glad to see the back of that first shot and then the rest of the night flowed really quickly and smoothly and uh, and a lot of fun too and I think they were all felt really good to be together yeah I think uh, once we got past that first yeah. shot and the panic had subsided a bit I think everyone was yeah. getting a little bit tense give you another thousand to leave right now Thomas Cushman was an interesting uh, piece of casting, actually. For uh, for the longest time, we were looking at English actors, weren't we? Yes. Older English actors yes. um, to play the captain as the captain is cast in in the, in the original movie. And um, uh, I think it was a picture of Thomas or something, and we suddenly thought, well, actually, um, Engelhorn isn't that a German name? <laughs> Could yeah. he be German? No, that's right. Well, yeah. it's probably just you and Fran getting excited about seeing a photo of him in a movie. That's, <laughs> no, that's actually, the he these, looked pretty grizzly. the way that these hunky guys usually get cast in these movies is they get, we they were get sort of... We sick of looking at old, horrible old... Uh, I, suddenly, <laughs> I suddenly wake up one morning and find that there's hunks have arrived. Yeah. 
in That's the movie. That's not true. What a wonderful actor. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Oh, yeah, I know. Wonderful actor. German absolutely. actor, yeah. I was always, you know, vaguely, you know, interested in the notion that this was 1933 and that, you know, he was a German mm. character in 1933. It's just obviously it's a very politically charged time and, uh, you know, it's specifically a good source of conflict because I think something about denim would have bristled at taking orders from a German, you know, Denham isn't the sort of guy that would have liked uh, liked that at all. So it's helpful to us in the dynamics of our characters. The sequence in the cabin, I, I you know, just should point out that um, if you look very briefly on the wall, there's a shield, a, a native-looking shield, which is actually from the original 1933 movie. I managed to sneak a few of my props. I've been collecting <laughs> Kong memorabilia um you know for like 10 or 15 years and uh ended up with various drums and shields and um spears and things and interesting because you know in the original black and white kong there's all the the native sequences with their shields and you don't know what colors they are but um they're actually that 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 orange yellow and black kind of um was a sort of the 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 colorations the spears on the wall in the sequence uh from the original King Kong movie as well. All right, fine. Might as well this is the first time we meet Adrian, of course, although he's the character of Jack Driscoll's been talked about. We, we, we put a lot of thought into how could we set up this character. Yes, and well, the he's a big change from the original film, isn't he? Yeah, big change. That came really from really early discussions when we were just talking about how we were going to approach this and uh, came from something Fran said, I think, which was she had a very strong sense that Kong is the biggest alpha male in the world, and if you send somebody who's an action hero, He-Man type, up against Kong, suddenly the story becomes about Kong and the men chasing Kong to save the woman, mm. and it stops becoming about the woman. So, so we started thinking about how how can we make the character of Jack Driscoll more interesting, and and I remember you always liking the idea of the fish out of water, and and about as out of water as you can get is this sort of intellectual brilliant young playwright um, mm. who's a total New Yorker. Um, sort of a Eugene O'Neill yeah, we were kind looking, of prototype, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, we looked yeah, at, yeah. At, at, at O'Neill, certainly, and, mm. you know, and, and then suddenly he finds himself in, in, the, uh, in, in the midst of, of the jungle. Mm. Worth just very quickly mentioning a couple of these little cutaways to the steam room, to the engine room of the ship. Um, that we actually set up an engine room with real steam-powered equipment that we managed to get this big engine and all this 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 gear because you can't really fake it. And, and we uh, we had to, to plumb and pipe live steam and to drive all these big machines. And we actually set up a sort of a ship's engine room in a studio, but all it was really live steam-powered. And everything was hot and, and dripping and sweaty. Yeah. It was really cool. It was kind of it's one of those fun <laughs> things. We wanted the ship's crew to feel like they were itinerants, that they were all without real sense of state or purpose and that they were involved in a slightly dodgy um, wheeling and dealing of live animals, you know, which yep. is which is something that we touch upon on the ship but not very clear and it's probably worth explaining it in the commentaries because it's we didn't really get it across that well in the script is that... Um, <laughs> Our, our notion for, for what the venture ship yeah. does and for what Englehorn does is the, um, 
transportation and, and the selling of live animals that we found out doing our research that the early 1930s mm. was quite a busy period of time for zoos in America. The zoo phenomena was really catching on and there were more and more zoos being built and also circuses. circuses. And there was a lot of need for live animals, exotic animals, you know, lions, tigers and uh, and the like, you know, all sorts of apes and monkeys and various things. And that there was actually quite a lot of not not illicit trading but you know very borderline mm-hmm. legal where people would go and obviously go on safaris and basically do live animal capturing and transport them back and sell them big market back in America for live animals and we actually thought that was a really good trade for Englehorn to be involved in um, which is why uh, the ship is full of empty cages because our, our scenario that we had in our mind scenario was that he'd just arrived in New York with mm. a boatload of animals, just, yep. made the deal, you know, pocketed the cash, and now he was heading back again with an empty ship. But Denim was able to, you know, hire it cheaply. Um, so instead of this luxurious vessel to travel to their filming location, Denim's got the cheapest deal he can yep. on a smelly... I mean, I can only imagine what the ship smells like with all the the animal poop <laughs> around. Um, you know, he's got a sort of a, a cheap uh, return trip on Englehorn's vessel. Um, this was in a fantastic set. No, I mean, but held his shit on. You have to look very, very, very quickly now because two in the original movie they have gas bombs that they um, they use to bring down Kong. We use chloroform bottles, but in the shot that's coming up in, in a second, and you get to you get to see the two original gas bombs that I've got from the 1933 Kong sitting. In, in amongst the chloroform bottles. If you look very closely, it's just coming up now. There we go, Adrian looks in, and up in the top right-hand side of the screen are the uh, two of the original gas bombs, props from the, from the 1933 film. This was fun, creating these movie posters too, because <laughs> yeah. that was a last-minute idea. We, it was sort of a thought that came only days before we started shooting, and we needed them done very quickly, but... Um, because what, what what I did is I, is I you know occasionally buy movie posters just for fun at um, auctions and so I've got a lot of Christie's and Sotheby's and um, various other companies and and I just you know look at the catalogues and occasionally every now and again I buy a, an old poster usually a, a Kong poster or a monster movie poster but. Um, I never throw my catalogues away because I always thought, wow, you know, these auction catalogues are a great source of research. And then I remember when the idea came to create fictitious movies for Bruce Baxter, mm. um, I, I was finally able to feel good about not throwing away these catalogues because I have a friend always accuses me of keeping everything. I you can do never, keep everything. I can never throw anything away. <laughs> and and suddenly I was able to say now, you had a reason. remember all those old catalogues that I've kept? Let, let's grab them. <laughs> and I, I went through them all and I circled posters of real 1930s melodramatic-looking movies because they had such a great style about them and I, and I circled a whole bunch of them for the art department to sort of get inspiration from uh, on creating these movie posters at the last minute um, based on photos of Kyle. He still won't tell me where he came from. But it wasn't any place good. Two wonderful actors, Evan Park and, of course, Jamie Bell. We knew someone was going to have to lead the group into the jungle um, after her, and we didn't necessarily want it to be Jack because we needed that to be a process of him finding his courage and continuing even though it was against all odds. Um, so we wanted someone who you could believe 
would lead a group into the jungle. Well, and in a way, I mean, Evan is the Bruce Cabot character from the original film, isn't he? Yes, he is. He's, he's kind of the, the Jack Driscoll first, first mate. mate of the ship, so he's fulfilling yeah. that role um, as we redefined it, you, you know, redefined the character yeah. to be a writer as played by Adrian. So, uh, Yeah, and we wanted him to be a soldier and someone who had, had been a veteran and, and to have a real sort of sense in, of, of depth and backstory and, you know, you just know some sort of history is there with that character. This is Jack Driscoll's play, Isolation, as, mm. as named by Fran, and published by Selkirk Press. Um, Jamie Selkirk, Jamie Selkirk. Our, our, our film editor. <laughs> yes. This was a, there was a longer version of this scene, which is kind of quite sweet, a funny montage, which was... Her trying her, on her costumes. trying on co- costumes and going, you know, crazy. We wanted her to be so wound up about the, the idea of meeting, you know, Jack Driscoll, her hero, but yeah, the uh, the irony is that she doesn't quite know what he looks like. This is Herb, and this is actually this is a, a scene that we shot during uh, our pickup shooting um, because we had we had originally shot a scene with Naomi and the guys, as we call it, her, you know, where where yeah. she has to be introduced to the mess characters and the other you know crew of the ship, is, you know, realize that there's a woman on board and all that sort of thing, and. Um, and we did a version of it, uh, which we ended up throwing that away and um, replacing it with this scene. And also we found that what, what we'd accidentally written, or maybe I'd written, was something that was too, for, especially for Anne, where she was too, almost too uh, prissy about it, too arch, arch. about it, and mm. too, um, it, was, it was too much misunderstanding where, where, where Jack Driscoll thought she was just another glorified chorus girl and and so there she was left as this sort of the wounded victim of the slight, whereas it became more interesting if there was a mutual misunderstanding, which mm. was something Fran came up with. Um, so that you know, so that Anne had, so that the, so that the relationship wasn't overly burdened, basically, and didn't consequentially overburden the film or the storytelling. Mm. Excuse me. Wait a minute, Anne. So much younger in person, and much better. The boat voyage was, you know, probably the single hardest thing about making the film was just oh, yeah. figuring out the beats on the boat journey and how... Holding the tension and... And how economical you can be, because obviously it was, you know, in everybody's interest to get to Skull Island as quickly as we could. And yet, you know, we wanted to give our characters a chance to settle and uh, relationships to form and tensions to build and... Uh, you you know. want to care about the characters, don't you? Yeah. So people like Jimmy, for example, who we just see there. Yeah. So the these defacing of these posters was uh, done by Fran and myself on set. We sort of grabbed a pen and quickly moved in and <laughs> did silly things to the posters. I know this was one of those sequences that we um, had out of the edit for a long time, yeah, you know, Bruce couldn't... finding his posters. But then, you know, I always thought it was funny and I, I just felt like, you know, we, we should... We should have it in, and we sort of put it back in the edit at the, the last minute. Otherwise, it would have been a deleted scene. Yeah. But they are sailing towards disaster. We took the venture out to sea to shoot it. I didn't actually um, do it uh, with my problem with being on a vessel of any description. But uh, Randy Cook, our second unit director, shot the scenes, and we actually had some trouble with the boat. Um, it developed a very, very small leak 
the boat was fully tested and certified for you know marine transport but because of the way that iron oxidizes this one little bolt had eaten a, a tiny hole through the sheeting at the very bottom of the boat oh and God. so thereby creating a very minute leak I think the, the hardest problem was was just finding this tiny hole. It was um, sending divers down and having to even figure out where this water was coming from. It was minute. Uh, but it did require us to take everybody off the ship for a few hours while this hole was located, and it was a pretty simple job to fix it up and then um, back on track again. But it made for an interesting news story at the time. The old uh, the news media loved the idea of ships sinking and all this, it was overly, overly dramatised, blown out of proportion a little bit for what it actually was, but uh, makes for an interesting story. One of the conversations I remember having while we were preparing the shoot is there was all sorts of discussion about how we rock the boat, <laughs> to use a phrase, how we, you know, whether the boat should be on a gimbal, they call them, which is a big mechanical device to be rocking. And I, I just thought we should keep it simple and have the actors and the cameraman do it for us. And so the swaying of the ship and the, the movement of the ship at sea was all just achieved by having the, um, the camera usually on a steady cam that would be just going up and down slowly and the actors would occasionally be swaying and rocking with the rhythm of the camera. So we sort of just did it the cheap way because the ship was at all times solidly, firmly planted on the parking lot. All right, everyone from the top. Those are real dolphins that, um, that our aerial crew shot. They, they obviously just saw them there one morning when they were taking the ship out and, and got a few feet of dolphins. It's amazing how dolphins are attracted to... To ships, isn't it? Even a, even a fake ship. <laughs> There's an interesting dynamic going on here. You've got the one of the original scenes in the original movie playing out. Yeah. And then, again, with you, had that very strong instinct of, of, of holding the tension through the boat journey. Well, this, this was something that, uh, that developed a lot, and it's something we can... You know, there are a lot of deleted scenes around this area that actually take the story in a slightly different direction, where... We, we have, you know, we use the map as something that was a secret that Denham had, remember that, and that he yeah. was um, keeping it back from everybody. And then when we decided that we, we weren't going to do that after we shot some of the scenes, which you can see in the deleted scenes, but we, we then had to go back and reintroduce the map in the investor scene. So there was a lot of mechanics of storytelling that we were playing around with. So the, this was, uh, you know, this boat voyage. There was everything else in the film was was very straightforward, mm. um, really compared to the boat journey. The boat journey was for me the nightmare of this film. Was... You had to get them to the point where you just know that Jack Driscoll's going to go after, and Arrow as soon as he realizes she's lost. So they kind of got to fall in love pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. We don't have much screen time for them to fall in, to fall in love, and we. We certainly introduced a lot more conflict at one stage and made it harder for them to retrieve. Yes. So we sort of we ended up losing a lot of that and making it fairly straightforward and yeah, simple. Yeah, that was another part. But this is this has um, helped enormously in this scene by Adrian and Naomi, who do a brilliant job. I mean, this is one of my favourite scenes, you know, from the whole boat journey. It's so, so simple and it's all relying upon the actors who are doing great. I mean, just look at Naomi's eyes and Adrian. They just, mm. these guys are just, it's, it's great to work with actors like this because, you know, you you, um, you realise that it doesn't have to all be in the words. It, yeah. it can be on their faces and in their eyes and it tells such a lot. 
This is an example of blue screen, modern shooting. I mean, this is in a studio. I mean, all of the boat stuff we've seen, apart from the helicopter shots, everything we've seen on the boat has been in, in a on a stationary boat, in, either in the parking lot or inside the studio with blue screens and stuff. I mean, one of the things that is so good about doing ship movies in this manner, you know, which is obviously adds a lot of effect shots to the to the shot count, and therefore it adds a degree of expense to the movie. But what I like about it is that you you control. Mm. The, the look of every scene because you imagine if you go out to sea in a ship with a camera crew and actors and you're having to film you know pages of, of the script you, you're stuck with whatever the sea is doing whether it's calm whether it's um it's rough if the sky is clear blue sky or whether it's gray you know rain clouds you're stuck with that you you basically have to take what you get because you you know it's such a big deal to shoot on the ocean that you you have no ability to do anything other than just you know accept what you're given as terms of what the elements are doing and the weather's doing and the second that you start doing it all with blue screens or green screens you you're immediately taking all that in, into your control and so we literally can shoot our scene with the actors um, get the drama that we want and then mm. later on, much, much later in, in this case, you know, up to sort of six or eight months later, I can decide, do I want the sea to be stormy? Do I want it to be rough? Do I want it to look blue or green? White caps? Do we want it to be cloudy? Blue skies? Dramatic, stormy, you know, um, cumulus clouds? Should it be dawn, sunset? All of the the look of it you can totally control. I also think that, you know, creatively it actually is so much better because it allows you to really make every scene look exactly like you want it to look and not be at the, uh, not be held hostage by the weather. Mm-hmm. You turned southwest last night. This was a scene worth mentioning because this was a very late addition to the script. I mean, this was a scene that we did in pickups where we had the actors, we, we, we had it all planned, you know, before we even started shooting, that the actors would come back just as they did on the Lord of the Rings films for two or three weeks of shooting during post-production because that's just the way in which we work and sort of shape the movies because we know that we're going to discover things when we start cutting the film. And, and we, when we started cutting the movie, we felt that we needed a scene that really did nail Kong. We, we felt mm. that at the end of the day we hadn't really established clearly enough if Denham knew something about Kong, whether anyone else knew anything about Kong, whether the island was a threat to the crew. We know what what every what all the different characters' relationship was gonna be to Skull Island and, and what they knew about Skull Island. And and we just realized that we'd whiffle waffled our way around it and not actually established it clearly. And so we wrote this scene here and shot it as a way of really anchoring what everybody knows and doesn't know about Skull Island and actually referencing the legend of a character called Kong. We liked giving the idea of giving it to Andy Serkis too, this backstory, because um, so, Lumpy was such a great character and he, he really didn't get to do too much with it on that boat journey. No, well, he was. That was one of the reasons why we we had Andy do it because he, we really liked what he did with developing Lumpy as a character yeah. and um, wanted to to give him more stuff to do. So, and obviously, there's the irony of Andy playing Kong as well, which was kind of fun. But um, that's obviously not the reason that why why we had Andy involved. We just thought his character would be perfect to 
be part of the sequence. You won't come back. Just as long as you understand that. We just felt that we, we didn't want this, this, the boat journey to really be about people searching for an island and then, then whoops, one day they wake is. up, whoops, mm. that they've arrived at the island. We felt that now that's a very economical way of doing it. And maybe I'm sure there's lots of people out there that would probably say, well, well, that's exactly what you should have done. Because, you know, I, I you know, we, we obviously arrive at Skull Island so much later in our movie than they did in 1933, which is a, a great example of economic storytelling. But we, we just wanted in this film to be able to be a little bit more complex with the way that we, you know, establish what Skull Island is and, and, and how and why they're getting there. Uh, this now, this was another sequence. Poor Naomi, this is the second time that we did this to her where she had to learn this entire dance routine yes, and we ended did. up only using a tiny little bit of it. You know, she's a natural dancer though. So yeah, yeah, no, she's, she's a great dancer, dancer. And, and it also, it was great to bring some humour into it and obviously, you know, Jamie... We, we had Jamie in our cast, and, and we cast Jamie, you know, because he's a, a, a great dramatic actor, and, and we wanted um, him to play Jimmy, but then, of course, you know, once... Couldn't help ourselves. There's a notion of a dance scene, <laughs> who else are you going who, who to turn to? And he loved it. He loved doing it. And, he's, uh, a great, he's a great dancer. James Newton Howard was very much involved, obviously, in, in creating the mood and feeling of this with his music as well as we, we were trying to create the sort of steam engine, almost being like the heartbeat mm. of the ship, like the sort of throbbing of the engines was, was sort of driving this tension that was building. And, um, and James did a, a, a great music track. Very, very difficult. This was a, a, a tricky sequence to score because it was kind of, we could have called it the boat montage but it, it, it encompasses all this growing tension but also this romantic kind of um, uh, fulfillment that sort of happens between between Jack and Anne and um, and yet we didn't want it to become a mushy romance and so there's we wanted to keep this sort of tension going under, yeah. underneath this scene and not make it too too smoochy and mushy in terms of the music, so um, it was a tricky area to, to write music for. Yeah, and this scene was in a number of different pla places, wasn't it? <laughs> its position, yeah. trying to figure out where and how to play this best. Well, the, well this whole boat, boat montage, you know, where everyone's getting tense and, and um, uh, they're, they're, Jack and Anne are falling in love and the message is coming in over the wireless here, the Morse code, that... All of this was sort of created in the editing of the film. It wasn't really something that existed in the script. No. Um, in fact, there's a, um, you know, this sequence where Engelhorn has handed the message was he was actually watching um, Adrian and Jack Black dancing in the back of the boat. Remember that? Yep, they were getting yeah. drunk and dancing, and, yep, and that was like... Exactly. He was watching something completely different than what we ended up using in the film. Um, just you, you sort of. That's the beauty of being able to get the the reshoots and have it ha being, you know, having that, being able to do that to look yeah. at what you've got, look at what's working. Mm. And, and, and sometimes, it's, sometimes back. it's not even the pickup. Sometimes you're just taking like like a yeah. lot of this was really taking existing material and yeah. actually re-editing really it in a different putting it in a different place, different yeah. order and different place, but. And and this sequence was again us just being nervous about not wanting them to be looking for an island and then bumping into an island. I mean, we we always like the irony of of the fact that it's when the ship turns around and they're actually Engelhorn is deliberately trying to get away from this 
area of the ocean is the time that they actually find Skull Island. So, um, you know, we we always felt that we needed to take Denham to his lowest possible point, and 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 for us, the abandonment of his film of of the end of his dreams was the sort of point mm. that we wanted to try to get there before we arrived at the island. Yeah. Now you know it, it could just be overly complex, and I mean we could have done what they did in 1933 and just sort of have get, him go straight there. there. I mean, and you know. I like this though. It is it, creepy. It's just I don't know. You just don't know whether it's a good or bad thing, really. I think when we saw that previous that you did on the way the the ship hit the island and it felt like it was being sucked in there, like mm. drawn to this mm. place. It wasn't mm. this just some crash into it. It was like it couldn't escape. Mm. Um, it it And it was creepy. It did feel strange. It, it sort of d- d- dictated this type of storytelling, I think. Mm. What is that? The map um, of the island actually changed. We, we drew one version of Skull Island which we shot and used and the guys are actually holding that version in some of these shots and uh, you can't really see it fortunately very clearly but then I I decided it looked very bland and very ordinary and didn't look very dramatic and I sort of after we shot a bunch of stuff I, I had them redraw a different outline for Skull Island and give it a different shape and this this smudge worked out okay too it's um it was sort of it was I just wanted a weird sort of doodle on the map that Denham hadn't realised or hadn't paid any attention to and, and you saw the first clue of Kong really, it was the first solid glimpse of the existence of something on the island This was shot in a tank in the back of our, our studio and uh, tilting up off the map on the tank to a miniature ship and a computer generated fog and then all the fog here that we're seeing was done inside our studio. We did a lot of shooting of the deck of the ship out in the parking lot, but um, all the fog, because we didn't want the wind to blow, and unfortunately Wellington's a rather windy city, we, we, we knew we couldn't generate all this fog in our p- parking lot because the wind would just whisk it all away. So we actually dismantled the entire ship that we'd built in the parking lot and we, and we put it into our soundstage so we could shoot primarily this sequence, this nighttime fog scene, because then we could fill up the soundstage with smoke and it would just stay there and hang in the air and uh, give us the, the density of atmosphere that we needed. And Jimmy, of course, reading Joseph Conrad there that we set up very briefly in the earlier scene. Mm. And we, we like the idea of using Heart of Darkness. Evan Park, the actor, loved it. Loved the idea that this was about him choosing to allow this young boy to read this book, even though it is... Um, racist, um, that he also knows that it is a journey, it's not an adventure story, that it's a very, very dark story, and that, that we wanted that to echo in terms of, of the recklessness with which Denim is proceeding, so up the river, so to speak. Mm. Well, it reminded us, I mean, there seems to be, you know, an element mm. of Conrad and the original inspiration for Kong, almost, you could almost believe yeah. that it was somehow... The adventurer, yeah. ...kind of connected and... Um, and just so it felt like it felt like an appropriate thing to do. There's a few little glimpses here of the real ship at sea, where we um, where we got some aerial shots of the real ship, and we added a lot of fog to them, like you know that sort of shot of there mm. of the bow through the waves. But this is mainly cutting 
um, uh, among studio stuff. It was it's sort of interesting. I, I found that um, the trick with, with shooting the ship in the in the studio was to keep the camera moving all the time, that uh, to make it feel like it was always movement, whether it's sliding past, like in these shots where the mm. cameras looks, you know, so it gives the feeling that the ship's moving past, but you're really just sliding the camera past. Or just even just going up and down on a crane, like with this one, we just just gently drifted up and down. It was just always keeping that movement going. And um, th this is Skull Island, so this is really a chance to talk about um, mm. a little bit of the island. We did need to roughly know where Skull Island would be geographically, and it's described in the original movie as being southwest of Sumatra. I've always grown up with that uh, southwest of Sumatra phrase mm. in my mind, which has always had a romantic connotations to me. Um, this fictitious island and uh, a place for it. So that's really all that we did indeed was to, you know, locate it somewhere southwest of Sumatra, um, far enough away from land that it's feasible that, you know, ships would have passed it by without really seeing it. We kept it outside of the shipping lanes because we found some old 1930s nautical charts which clearly delineate where the shipping lanes are most commonly you know where you'd find ships and where the passage of ships between continents would be so we you know we found a a home for skull island and the a little dot in the middle of the ocean um can't tell people the exact coordinates because you know obviously it's a secret it has to be preserved <laughs> Um, but we also uh, rationalised in our own minds too that the island by now, by 2006, 2007, the island would be sh um, sinking and basically is no longer there. Even if people did look for it, it's, it's sunk beneath the waves. Now actually the original Skull Island from 1933 was also sinking because in Son of Kong, the sequel that was made in the same year as the original, the, you know, the, you see the mm -hmm. island completely sink and disappear and um, some adventurous person for Discovery Channel could do an underwater um, exploration. You know, Robert Ballard could take his submersibles there and you'd probably find the ruins and the wall and things underwater. I mean, that would be a pretty cool Discovery Channel. I'd, I'd watch that. <laughs> I'd watch that if it was on TV. It'd be really cool. The, the undersea rediscovery of Skull Island. Very cool indeed. Could be some big monsters that are kind of lurking around in the ruins too. Some hitherto unknown... Mm sea creatures cool that's a that's an idea for the future <laughs> stick that one in the cupboard at the back of the brain there's some really um interesting digital work here too that uh, a lot of these shots you're seeing of the ship is, is a miniature that alex funky shot in our miniature stage about a 14 foot long miniature and the thing that uh, um really you know, excited me and astounded me when, when we were working on these shots at Weta at the, in the, the computer gen generating water mm. that they can do, the way they can actually create ocean swells and, uh, you know, all of the stuff that you're seeing is a miniature ship that was shot completely dry and Brilliant. the water is all computer generated water. Uh, and I, I just didn't realise that the technology had advanced that fast now yep. to actually be able to do computer oceans in the way that you can it's you know it's it's exciting times to be a filmmaker because when you get to a point that that you 
get surprised at just how where the technology is and you suddenly realize oh my god you mean you can actually do that you can make it look that real you know you you really start to get inspired and excited about um where things are it's just at the we we have reached a point that anything is possible now to put on film really this is an important moment first glimpse of skull island proper yeah. that we see and um you know, we sort of based it on uh, some conceptual art that we did. I, I sort of regret, in a way, not giving Skull Island a more signature shape, I guess. I, I know that, um, you know, it, it would have been nice to have had a mountain that's shaped like a skull, like the original mm. film, but we couldn't quite figure out a way of doing that and not making it that hokey. And yeah. it was sort of, you know, I, I sort of look, looking back on it now, I... It would have been nice to have given Skull Island even more of a sort of uniqueness than, than what we were able to do in those wide shots. But um, Very different arrival from the original. Yeah, it still obviously. feels pretty creepy, though. I, I like it. I like kept it. Kept it kind of obscured with a lot of smoke and stuff. And then what we had to do with our ship in the parking lot, of course, is that at one point from now onwards, we had to actually tilt the ship, um, I think, five degrees... Um, on its side, and so during the weekend, they, they got, the art department had to take this enormously heavy big s- ship that we built, you know, weighed tons and tons, mm. and they had to actually tilt the entire thing because I didn't want the actors to have to pretend that it was tilted for this stuff. I, I mean, mm. they were pretending it was rocking when it was at sea, but I wanted that slope on the deck because the ship is now sort of firmly lodged on the rock on a slightly oblique angle, so I wanted the um, actors to be playing that angle, to be able to have that angle to, to walk around and feel. I always imagined Skull Island, um, from the very beginning, not to be a, a sandy, tropical, Pacific island. I always liked the idea of these rugged rocks that that and it's part of it is the whole sinking thing is that obviously there is no beaches you know whatever was mm. the beach is gone and now you're really just dealing with cliffs and mountain sides and 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 elements of the island that were never supposed to be the coastline have now become the coastline because it's all slowly sinking and uh you know that was what we were playing around with here mm, they wanted to sort of play you know wanted to give the sense of history of a, of a vanished culture very um tricky to sort of convey it and again we decided not to dwell on any backstory and it's one of the things that we learned from the 1933 film mm. that we certainly did take that lesson as um you know not to worry about explaining everything it's like you know no, exactly. show it and don't worry about explaining what who built this and where are they now and why are these other people on there? And you know, to it's me, a mystery. It's, yeah, well, it's they. It's part of the mystery. Yeah, and, and it we should don't be. need to. Our characters don't have an understanding of it, and nor do we need to have an mm. understanding ourselves. You just uh, go along with the story. And could not remember because we were traveling in the night of first ages. This camera that they're using is um, an original 1920s Bell and Howe camera that actually was able to shoot film. Poor old Colin had to lug that around. Well, most of the time Colin's lugging a rubber version of the camera around because, believe me, that thing is so heavy. It it was almost impossible to carry. 
um, and he's just walking around with it on his shoulder. Just about all the time you see Colin walking around with a camera, it's actually a, it's a rubber, foam rubber camera. And the reveal of the wall, which is um, obviously one of the key revelations. Um, it was a pretty impressive set too, when it was, when it was built. Yeah, one of our most difficult sets to build and to work on. It was actually a really, really tricky, tr tricky set to work on because it was as chaotic and as um, rugged as it looks on screen. It wasn't any way to make it not mm. so. And we built it on a hilltop, a sort of Wellington hilltop, and um, up in Chili Bay, which is one of our, our our resident exterior locations in the Wellington area. It's where we did a lot of Lord of the Rings, yes, uh, we did. did the Bree Gates, and. Um, did um, a, a lot of the uh, different Hobbiton encampments, a little bit of Hobbiton. Mm. It was all shot up there, and so we that's where we put the village. And now the it's been Skull Island. Yeah, <laughs> it's been most things. It's been most things to us in the last ten years worth of filmmaking. The village and the wall was. Um, an area of conceptual design that Alan Lee was involved in. It. I, I thought that Alan would really have some great contributions to make in terms of the ancient civilization that had uh, that had existed on the island. That area of the island where the the, the wall existed and some of the ancient ruins and the village was uh, were things that Alan worked up and designed up along with um, Gus Hunter and Jeremy Bennett. I imagine that a lot of this, you know, architecture was built by people that we, we sort of took our influences from from um, Cambodia and, um, you know, elements of that sort of a little bit of Mayan kind mm. of architecture. We, you know, imagined it was built like, you know, three or four thousand years ago by people who have long since vanished. And, uh, yeah, interestingly enough too, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I in my mind managed to answer the question that a lot of people have of the original film is if they wanted to keep Kong out, why did they build such a big gate yes. in the wall? And I I thought that, you know, the gate and the wall were nothing to do with Kong, that they were actually, once it was, this was a huge city like Troy. Yes. And in the same way that Troy was surrounded by a big wall, it was traditional, you know, that, that you would have a wall to... Um, fortify your city with especially if you were on an island like this and then you know the scale of the of the wall demanded a huge gate because it was it became it was a ceremonial thing like the sort of gates that you see in big egyptian cities or um, ancient you know egypt or or like troy or or, or even edoras and lord of the rings you yeah. know or Minas Tirith, i guess is the best example of a walled city um very early on we came up we came up with that idea. I remember when we were talking really, really early on that the that, that, that this would not be the original culture. That the, the, the people that are are left are almost living almost a parasitic. Well, life. they've they've arrived. They've been swept onto swept the on, island yeah. maybe only three or four hundred years ago. Yeah. And have basically, you know, descend, descended into something approaching madness. Clung to life. Really, they, they they can't go into the middle of the island. They're too terrified, and they're and they're just clinging to this sort of horrible little corner of the, of what's left of the island. Yeah. And we and we we have them, you know, worship Kong, but I, I, we didn't really want to play up too much of the sort of worshiping the large gorilla. No, that, that much, not not quite as overtly as they did. No, in they're driven but... by fear a lot more. I remember yeah. we really wanted that. The and the idea with this with this roar that happens here is that is that Kong 
we, we, we're assuming, and again, you know, this, none of this is explained in the script because we didn't feel that we need to, but mm. we're, we're assuming that there is a ceremony that they have to sacrifice a maiden to Kong, you know, three or four times a year or however frequently they do it. But we, um, we wanted a sense that, that the scream that Anne mm. does there actually is heard by Kong and it sort of activates him. Is answered. And it's a way that they're not, the villagers on the island here are not expecting it. They, 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 they realise that Kong is now coming, coming and Kong is expecting a sacrifice but it wasn't the time for it, and so suddenly yeah. Anne has been responsible for throwing their entire system out of whack, and um, and that's why there's so much anger and sort of attitude towards these people that 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 they're they're feeling that they've brought the wrath of Kong upon them. Um, so you know, all these ideas were behind our thinking, and and you know, you don't have to explain them necessarily no. in the movie, but we have to know them in our heads obviously to, to sort of know what we're doing we wanted rather than to have we wanted the old woman to be what we liked about having the old woman and what she's actually saying here which is actually language uh, created by David Salo who was responsible for doing a lot of the translations of Elvish and Dwarvish for Lord of the Rings he actually came up with this language for these people and she's, she's, she's blamed she's very full of blame and anger and she's basically saying, you summoned him, you will pay. So mm. They, they re- refused to give one of their girls in, you know, in sacrifice. And, and we wanted that whole sense of, and again, playing off the young girl who will one day probably be sacrificed. Very blameful, very angry. Um, but we liked the idea that it was the women doing it in a way. Mm-hmm. Between the women, between mm. Anne and this woman, this old woman. Mm. She's like the Shah woman. The isn't Shah she? woman. She's yeah. like the Vicky uh, Horton, wonderful New yeah. Zealand actress. And Jacinta, who is the um, the young girl, she's very powerful. Yeah, wonderful too, focus. And so, yeah, we just I just wanted to sort of create a, a surreal feeling we use a lot of step printing and different camera speeds and things to do the attack because I wanted it to feel like you know a fairly nightmarish but realistic I sort of wanted the film to break out of fantasy and and, and have a, 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 a almost like a horror movie um, sort of reality to it well you know movie reality not which is never real reality um, to to that amb- to, to that uh, you know attack from the um, the Skull Islanders, and then this was this was a fun night. This was where we got to build these huge big dump tanks in our parking lot and um, dump water on the the actors. There's a great outtake of Andy throwing himself off the deck of the ship. We got away. We got to be grateful for that gentleman. What about Mike? He didn't get away. This was a scene that was uh, later pick up. Um, this didn't exist in our original screenplay and we uh it was one of those ones that we added after we had done some some editing of the the principal photography we decided to put this scene in which, which you know we wanted to again we wanted to, to reposition de- denim because once you when, once you when you're going through the story like this you know you're ultimately telling it through denim's eyes um to a large extent and obviously you know at times through through um jack and uh, Anne's um, experiences as well, but you know we wanted to to recenter what Denham's attitude was, and basically his attitude was, well, we got out, we got some great shots, now yeah, let's just he, get the hell out of here. He just wanted to leave. 
you know, we, it was it was us pulling away from the sense of 1933 where Denham wants to film Kong. He still doesn't really know or understand no, what Kong is. And, no one and, does. And, the truth of the and, island is and, hidden. And they just want to get the hell out, hell out mm. of there. But, of course, fate is conspiring to not allow that to happen. Yeah. Interesting um, solution to how to get the... Um, Skull Island guy on the ship as well because we were thinking, well, how, how does he get on board? Because in the original movie, it's a canoe that pulls up alongside. But what, what, once we arrived at the idea of having the storm, we thought that it wasn't really, you know, going to be that easy to get them canoeing up to the ship. So we we went the pole vaulting way instead, um, which I kind of thought was visually quite interesting. It's very cool. Little animated pole vaulters. They weren't real. They were just a little computer-generated person. And this is obviously a, 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 um, a plot device that they used in 1933. Same situation, really, where Driscoll recognises the, um, the same uh, necklace that he saw the village and realises what's happened. It's quite cool, though, that, that, that we get this sequence and the tension of not really knowing what's happened to her and yet the ship's leaving... Yeah, interesting directing Naomi in those scenes because I like I started to try to tell her what to do, and then I realised that she she's been in the ring. Yes, and I didn't have to say anything <laughs> to her. I said, "Well, you, you know what, you know what to do," because yeah. I've seen it in the ring. This kind of, of terror and horror. Yeah. So the, this was all shot with rain towers at night and uh, dump tanks, and everybody was absolutely drenched. But fortunately, uh, most of it was happening during the summer months, which makes a big difference, actually. The chill factor wasn't quite so bad. It wasn't but, too um, bad. We literally had to tip buckets of water on our actors' heads um, before, before each take because everybody had to be soaked to the skin for a mm. long, long time. This was a tough one. Well, th this was in, a, in our parking lot. Again, all of the ocean and the coastline stuff, we just built a big tank. And um, tanks are, are great to work in in terms of control because, again, as a director, it's nice to have those that control and take the unpredictability out of it. But um, it's hard to make the ocean look real because you're making it the waves and things. And instead of building a big, tricky wave machine, we um, we just put mechanical diggers like big bulldozers in and just whack the water with the bulldozers to make the to make it go up and down and make the waves. This was one of our most complicated yeah. nights of shooting. Uh, I think it, we probably were shooting a couple of nights with this stuff because this was, you know, about a hundred extras in makeup with not wearing many clothes, getting drenched to the skin at night time. And they were cold, these poor, poor people. They were brilliant. Oh, they were, were, they, I they think they were some of the best extras fantastic. you've ever, ever yeah, yeah, shot. Yeah, they were great. I mean, we fantastic. really we really cast um, good performers yeah, and they good were all faces. Really good and actors. they just were so brave. I mean, that's mm. what I'd call it. So brave to be wearing as little as what they're wearing and to be drenched with rain towers and have to work all through and the night. It was tough And we, we've got to give props to Naomi too because she was in that little yeah. nighty and well, it was you the did, beginning what did like we a, do to half, that poor girl? Half she a was, movie in a night slip. And she was dragged, kicked and half drowned. and Yeah, she was amazing though. Yeah. Incredibly no, strong. Never, never, not one word of complaint. No, she's incredible, professional. So I, I like this was one of my favourite little <laughs> gags where where Engelhorn has a 
a load of Tommy guns under his bed. A little bit of black market trading. <laughs> you just want it. You guys just wanted to get the we, machine guns we wanted, out. We wanted Tommy guns. I always thought, <laughs> well, hey, it's 1933, and, and <laughs> we can have Tommy guns versus dinosaurs. Yeah. This was about the most difficult visual effects shot, I think, in the whole movie. Probably, if, if we asked the, the mm. guys, they'd probably nominate this one as the most difficult shot. It was a combination of boats and CG water and miniature walls and things. Alex Funky and his team um, were very, just exactly the same team that did our miniatures for Lord of the Rings. They went straight on from Return of the King and rolled mm. straight into Kong. And uh, a lot of what you see on Skull Island is, uh, is miniatures. You know, Skull Island is predominantly miniatures. This was... Uh, a set that we built inside a, an old warehouse that uh, we actually ran out of space. Eventually, we, we, we didn't have any space left to build, and we had to go to a, a, a sort of a warehouse that um, was nearby, but not one of our usual studios, and um, and build this wall. I love um, this idea of it being this old. Yeah, well, this was a departure really? from the original film where we... Mm. we came up with this idea. This was actually in our original 1996 script. I remember we... I remember coming up with this mm-hmm. this idea, uh, you know, ten years ago, and um, it's got and great it would be sort of cool. So that because I just thought it was good if they never had to open the gate, if, if the gate was sort of hadn't been opened for hundreds and hundreds of years, and that they managed, I, you know, they figured out a way in which they get the sacrificial victim across onto the altar without having to actually open the gate. And I like the idea that there was this big chasm on the other side too, that there was the, the the island was cracking and splitting apart as it was sinking. It was actually, you know, breaking mm. like chunks of it were, 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 were was fracturing and um, and that, that's why there's all these chasms throughout the island. And, uh, and this just happens to be a great defensive mechanism, obviously, for any of the creatures that can't get across to the village. But um, they've developed this... The system of lowering down. I, I thought, thought it was kind of a cool idea. And here he comes. When it, and, and also, this was the beginning of poor Naomi having to scream. She did mm-hmm. a lot of screaming. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we made a decision not to show too much of Kong in this opening sequence. Um, you know, even though people have been waiting a long time for him to appear in the movie... Uh, you know, we didn't want to just go straight in there and say, "Look, here he is." We just wanted to keep—we wanted to keep him mysterious and creepy for a little bit longer. And you know, we show obviously bits of him here, but um, we don't get a, a really good look at Kong until the next time we we're, we're with him. We also um, made a decision not to worry about building giant mechanical hands. I think uh, one of the things that you always associate with Kong, I guess from the 1976 version mm. with, with Jessica Lang, is the big rubber mechanical hands. And um, and in- interestingly enough, when we were making Kong back in 1996, before Lord of the Rings, we, we'd planned on building big hands because back then that was what we had to do. The technology needed it. But uh, the computer-generated 
yeah, imagery has come so far now that I, I figured, you know, we may as well just use computer-generated hands so that they match. Because there's always that, that, that constant battle if we made rubber mechanical hands of them always, you know, not quite looking like the, the same as the computer-generated Kong. And so we just use simple um, blue or green sort of sticks uh, padded with foam that we'd you know be able to have Naomi interact with but we always we would replace those with um computer generated fingers for Kong. So it's the little moment we wanted a little beat where where uh, uh Denim and Kong actually briefly lock eyes. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Recognise each other. Yeah. That was the was that a that was one of Vandy's mocap moments, was it? Yeah, no, I, a lot of the facial stuff yeah. is, um, is Andy's mocap, yeah. And I, 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 we were intrigued by the idea that only Denim has mm. seen Kong, that even though something, obviously something horrific and uh, something very horrible has happened to Anne, he, what he chooses to share with the others was something we, we wanted to, to not necessarily he he realizes i think that part of denim realizes that if he was to say hey guys she was just taken by a 25 foot gorilla they'd all just turn around and say right well she's gone let's just get back on board the ship and go and he realizes that he has to keep quiet because he doesn't want to scare them he's got this incredible chance to to catch her maybe on film on film yeah yeah Mm. Yeah, again, at, at this point, you know, we were wanting it to be pure, Denim's pure motivation is film, that he wants to film he's, he's beginning to lose his moral compass, though, and mm-hmm. it's a slow sort of progression that we wanted to happen to him. Mm. Um, to earn those, to sort of earn that moment where he displays Kong mm. in, in New York. The wide angle will do just fine. <laughs> I like <it. laughs> I do like the wide angle lens line. It kind of makes me laugh. Yes. So everybody's crossing over into the island and uh, it's our first glimpse really of what the interior of Skull Island looks like because deliberately held it back, didn't really want um, mm. people to, to know what was behind the wall particularly. And uh, We wanted that ticking clock set up that Englehorn was going to leave too. We wanted to put yes. the pressure on right away. Yep. Yep, a feeling that they haven't got an unlimited amount of time to achieve what they want to achieve. And I'm sure that Englehorn doesn't really expect them to find Anne alive anyway. No. Wanted to make Skull Island very impenetrable, you know. Wanted it to really feel like it was it was not that, you know, not, not, not easy for humans to get through. That, that as, a, as a giant ape, he, you know, Kong has a path in which he's used to, to leaping and jumping from rock to rock. And obviously the dinosaurs have have um environment in there but for for to be a human inside this place we wanted it to be the most torturous tangled environment you could possibly imagine we're also obviously looking at a, a one of our deleted scenes here too now um this was originally going to be our first encounter with the dinosaurs and it was strange because the brontosaur scene, which is coming up, um, you know, became our first encounter in the theatrical version of the film, and it was never designed to be. I wanted to really make a big deal of the fact that there were dinosaurs on the island, and this was the scene that was designed especially to do that, to sort of feature the prehistoric life in a surprising way. And a little bit of a homage to the Stegosaurus as well, is it, from the original? Actually, it's a ceratops, yeah. is what we called it. 
Yeah, and the, I, I, this is all shot in um, to give us a handheld kind of chaotic feel. I guess you could say, um, from my point of view, it's like a, it's a cousin of the cave troll fight in Balan's tomb. Yeah, uh, you know, it, it very much is influenced by that kind of feel a homage to Harryhausen and to the great, you know, dinosaur attacks yep. of the past, but done in a way that um, loosens up the camera. And, and hard to do too. A lot of this was shot by Randy Cook, our second unit director, did the bulk of um, the sequence. The I guys did. running and hiding. and Yeah, yeah. all this great, great crazy stuff yeah. for them charging around. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted to try to give the impression that these animals are huge lumbering scary beasts and uh, and also to show the power of the guns too that really you know these this is Tommy gun versus yep. dinosaur territory yeah, that, was. that we're in mm, the Tommy gun just won yeah yeah <laughs> not a good thing for natural history lovers <laughs> no. not a good thing at all it's kind of strange that you know I'm sure people some people watching this will have an adverse re reaction to dinosaurs getting shot like this. They are now. A little bit of a homage to the original film and the way that his tail shakes at the end and sort of rattles, death rattle. Yeah, in terms of the storytelling, we also also wanted that moment with uh, I remember with uh, Denim filming. Just, just it really mm -hmm. is. He cannot. He is, but seriously, cannot believe how good this stuff is. This is his lucky day. Yeah, he's just and yeah. and we wanted that film to to just be so it becomes more and more priceless. Yes, as it, as he goes. The deeper on. into the jungle, the Deep, yeah. more amazing his film becomes. Yeah. Yeah. And then this, um, this sequence with Anne and Kong, it was tough to think of how to portray the first sort of appearance of Kong. I mean, we didn't see much of him at the altar, and um, this is the time now that we obviously get to really see him for the very first time. And I just wanted to tease and keep teasing, which is why we've got these over-shoulder shots, and uh, we've got the camera again sort of quite chaotic, quite disorientating. Because I, I wanted to to be moving all over the place to somehow capture the craziness of what Anne must be going through as yeah. well. That the, 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 the chaotic nature of the camera work sort of reflects her panic and you know all that sort of stuff. That's what goes on in your mind. And then yeah. you end up with a shot like this, which is finally you know audiences are getting to get a, a lingering look at what Kong is like. And this, the, a lot of this came from the, the, the agitation, which I love there. That that really is Andy Circus on the mocap stage, isn't mm -hmm. it? Very much, yeah. We and use his movements. For yeah, the stuff. and and I love that idea. That I remember you and Fran and I talking about what is this place that he goes to? This the, it was called the Killing Ground, wasn't it? In our script, it was called yeah, the Killing, the killing Ground. Ground. But he's winding himself up to kill her. I mean, he that's is. what he's doing here. Is that it's part of his ritual? Yep is this sort of growing anger that he has to build himself up to the moment that he, he kills these yeah. sacrificial victims. And, and yet what the one thing that happens here is Naomi stabs him in the fingers and manages to surprise him and get away. And She does the one thing they have never done no, They've never done. And, and even though she's quickly caught again, he realises that the, she, there's people coming after her. He, he's yeah. heard them, he's reacted to them, and now 
he's on the move again and suddenly his routine is broken. That, that's what we're thinking. Yeah. yeah. God, these commentaries are great to be able to explain the, the movie to people. <laughs> explain the movie to people. Explain and also, what we couldn't But also we didn't want her to be this, like, oh, she's got blonde hair, oh, she's different, you know, oh, mm, you yes. know. We really did want wanted her to be, actually, she could have just as easily have been one of those girls lying in that pit. Yes. Um... But oh, there was all sorts of little storytelling points in there, including the necklace, of course, that that, that Driscoll then finds. Jack yes, Driscoll then yes. finds all of those things that we you you had to set up. I remember in the filming, and there yeah. it is. <laughs> yep. Um, yep. Poor Naomi. I have to give her credit. That was that was a pretty intense sort of session in the old hand there. Well, that yeah, she had when to she was through. getting shaken around, she was just basically sitting in this weird little chair contraption and really getting shaken. A lot of the shaking was happening for real. It was a, a you know she was really yeah. it would have not been good for a person prone to seasickness. I'll tell you, it, <laughs> you would have been spraying. Well, yeah. that's not right about it, but. You know. <laughs> We also found that we needed interaction with Kong's fingers and Anne as he was squeezing her and picking her up. And the stunt guys provided a lot of flexibility, which made it feel more like she was in a lifelike moving hand. Yeah, she, she, she used to describe how weird it was to spend a whole day on set being potted and poked by guys dressed in blue and green suits. So that's it for disc number one. Adventures on Skull Island underway. So if you're interested in seeing what happens next, then you've got to get up and put your other disc in. Sorry about that. <laughs> so welcome back to disc two. Hopefully you've had a chance to make a cup of tea or maybe it's the next day or the next week since disc one and hopefully you've had a good day and enjoyable time and everything's gone well for you and um, sit back now and relax into disc number two. Only a few more hours to go, everybody. <laughs> I always like this gag with Andy shooting the mosquito. <laughs> I thought that was cool. That was funny. The, the, the insects and the bug life on Skull Island was important to us too. Make it a very, very buggy place. Now, this is an exterior location. It's not inside a studio. It's um, We built it. It was a, what, what we did build here was too large for the studio. It was um, this, this avenue of kind of old ruin that they're in um, was too large, and so we built it on a very... Um, windy part of the Wellington coastline, exactly the same bit of land that Theoden's camp was was built for right. um, for two towers. Going off to the paths to the dead. Yeah, yeah, the entrance to the paths of the dead. Yep, same. It's it's for Lord of the Rings fans. This is a sort of this is hallowed ground. Yeah. We have these little yeah the gorilla footprint. That's right. The tourists can go and find the gorilla footprint. And we just left it there. We didn't clean it up <laughs> the um it's it's interesting because wellington is so small and it's so you know it's a city it has houses and it has factories and it has everything else that finding these little pieces of land they only there's only a few of them that exist and we tend to use them over and over again from film to film um all the time we actually did a bit of forgotten silver was shooting here too when uh, there's a spanish civil war battle scene and it was shot in the same little section of land this is one of my favorite gags Abominable snowman. Mm, abominable <laughs> snowman. That was pushing it a bit. We we didn't we weren't sure how silly to get there, but uh, it was fun having a character like Lumpy. Lumpy I mean, it, it's it good it having yeah, yeah, and Andy can pull it off. It's good he having does. a bit of silly humour like that. It's, uh, sort of don't want well, to... the, every time I've seen it with an audience, it's had always got a huge laugh. So yeah, something went right. 
So, yeah. of course, in a, in a theatrical version, this sequence here ended up being our introduction to dinosaurs, but um, as we've just seen, it was always intended to be the follow-up, you know, and we know that dinosaurs exist on this island already, so finally, at least in this version, we've got it around the right way now. And this is an interesting sequence because this was in your 96 script, I remember. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I read it and uh, and you, um, we, were, we were sort of talking about the sort of like the big events, moments in the story and and uh, and you guys left this out and I was the one distinctly remember saying, I love the Brontosaurus stampede. Mm. You've got to put it back in. Mm. And, and, uh, and of course, I think. It works brilliantly. Well, in the 1996 version, the Brontosaurus Stampede was... Um, we'd, we'd actually picked a location for it, and it was um, it was out in this ruined valley with these big kind of rock formations, and uh, it was a, it's a great location to sort of have these brontosaurs running rampage down this weird, very prehistoric-looking valley. And... Um, and we went out and we wreckied it and we took lots of photographs and that was where this exact sequence was going to take place. And right. and what what happened in the intervening 10 years is we ended up using that location for the Paths of the Dead sequence in Return of the King. Right, the pinnacles. It's the pinnacles, yeah, right. yeah. And it's where Aragorn and the guys are going up in horses in, in Orlando and uh, they're going up through those rock formations. Oh, that would just have been before. cool. And, and so, yeah, and so that was always... There was always earmarked for this Bronto stampede. Film didn't happen, and so we, we used it for Return of the King, and then it made it impossible to use again. It would have just been its so distinctive, we could never have gotten away with it. So we we had to design this environment. Um, I remember it just being a bit of a trick, because it was like I'd, I'd, oh, I'd lived for 10 years with the idea of them running down this the Pinnacle Valley in Good my rocks. head. Those ones. Sorry. No, they're all CG rocks. Yeah, well, they're, they're, they're some really rubber, good. Some they're, rubber ones, but most of them are CG. The very, really see successful rocks. rocks. Oh, well, thank you, Philip. It's <laughs> good to have a bit of rock. A bit of, bit of rock. Um, compliments of the rock is nice. <laughs> the rope doesn't look bad either. And the <laughs> ferns are particularly exciting, yeah. I must say. Herb, the cameraman, um, one of the things that we had set up was the fact that he's got a tin leg an artificial leg and so John Sumner who plays Herb is is, is doing his running as if he has a t- tin leg but uh, it, it sort of never really got featured in the theatrical film like, no, oh, I'm not leaving the camera oh you idiot And so this is kind of fun shooting, how a lot of this was done with a what's called a cable cam, which is like a camera suspended off a, uh, a rope, and, and the, the camera is sliding down the rope like a flying fox, we call it, like a pulley system, um, because it was the only way that we could really track fast enough with the actors. But, of course, they're running down a, a um, hillside in front of blue containers, and everything is a miniature that you're seeing, really, in shots like this. So, and, and in quite a few of the shots, um, the actors are actually running on a treadmill too. That uh, they're in a studio running, like on a on a jogging machine, in front of a blue screen, and the miniature gets put behind. The Velociraptor. This was this was a design that we did in 1996 that we pretty much kept intact. Um, 
because, of course, when we were doing Kong first time round in 96, Jurassic Park was very, very fresh in people's minds, and, and we wanted to do raptors, but we wanted to make them look very different to the, you know, the, the right. great creatures that Stan Winston had designed for Jurassic Park. So we we base our ones on a bit more like a uh, pit bull terrier. Right. You know, the shape of their, their head is a bit, and their eyes, it's got a sort of a pit bull yep. quality to them. We sort of veered away. It's not necessarily reptilian. Um, but that was one of the cool things is the fact that we didn't have to be strictly historically correct in terms of our dinosaurs. We were able to just design sort of fantasy-type dinosaurs to some degree. And these are, I mean, I, I call these brontosaurs because, you know, when I was a kid, the, the, this was a brontosaurus. Right. These big creatures. But I think the name brontosaurus has gone out of favour and they call them a patasaurus now. Oh, really? And the, and they're technically, I don't think there is such a thing as a brontosaurus anymore. But um, but we always called this the bronto stampede because brontosaurs were, were around when I was a kid and so I don't think they should cease to exist anymore. And you, you prevised that sequence, and, it, and it's actually turned out pretty much as, as previs. Yeah, you tend to stick almost identically to your previs because there's nothing else. Right. You know, you, you, it's so technical, this shooting this stuff, and you have to be so specific with the camera angles and where, what the actors are doing, and, and you know, it's, it's quite amazing how um, the previs ends up becoming an almost exact carbon copy duplicate of the finished scene. And and so or the other way around, I guess. I so you, so useful for the actors too, isn't it? it yeah. Really, it, I mean, I know they've all said that it yeah. really helps them. Well, we did. We had a, a we had a screening of the previs just before we started shooting. Oh, that's right. Because we'd done most of the previs had was done before we did start shooting. Mm. The majority of it, and so we were able to have a little sort of premiere of the movie before the night or two before we started shooting the film. Remember, the actors were very excited. It was yeah. it was a great spirit. Um, in the room that night to be screening sort of the film before we'd even started shooting. There was yeah. these great lumps of film with just with little grey motion-captured people doing all the work. This is a good moment, I think, because in the storytelling, one of the reasons why I'm, I'm glad it's in there is because we didn't want Denim to just... I mean, he's brave. Denim is trying to save Herb there. He's not a complete and utter... Um, villain so right. to speak and 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 yeah. he is pretty shocked i love that look on jack black's face yeah yeah we never saw denim as being a villainous character we saw him being a character who just basically loses his uh moral compass is what fran yeah. says yeah. just doesn't quite know when to stop when to actually act with more humanity recklessness becomes yeah. an obsession and then it, yeah. yeah yeah and this was a um it's the first time you get a good look at this him. This is the way. really first time, yeah. yeah. This is where we just have to, we have no excuses. Kong has to work well because, you know, I, I always think that when you're shaking the camera around and being crazy and wild with the camera angles, you can disguise some of the trickery. But this was, you know, we, we this is a scene that we weren't hiding anything anymore, that this was uh, Kong in full sunlight. So the swamp scene is, um, we're about to come into the swamp scene shortly, <laughs> which is um, a, a scene that was obviously, you know, in the original movie, very memorable when they build a raft and cross the swamp. And we duly 
wrote and shot our version of it, and I never thought in a million years that the swamp scene would be cut out of the film, which we did cut it out of the theatrical version because we we just couldn't figure out a way to tighten the film up, you know, and and justify having a scene like the swamp. Um, it just it just didn't. You know, the film would have just gotten longer, mm-hmm. and so it was a casualty of the of the editing mm-hmm. process. But um, for any Kong fans, or you know, it's the swamp is a sort of a memorable thing that we never quite made it across the swamp. But here we go. Yeah. We're in the extended cut. Come on, guys, we need more rope. So the, I mean, you know, we wanted to to give the feeling that now we're back into the theatrical. We're just a little sort of tease there and then we're about to go into the extended again. We, you know, I didn't want to sort of dwell on them building a raft, but um, it was good to just to have these bits of of old logs lying around so at least you could justify how they could put the raft together. Mm-hmm. The idea of Bruce going back to the ship and abandoning them was something that happened during the shooting with the film, wasn't it? It wasn't in our original script, but we we just thought it was a nice idea to have the the group sort of thinning out. That yeah, we came came and went on it, didn't we? Yeah. And then, and then yeah. And it also allowed sure. us the opportunity for uh, for Bruce to make a reappearance again, too. It, w- it was about rem- the ticking clock. Mm. I mean, he reminds the audience there's a ticking clock. It's about... It's about more and more people becoming more and more afraid of, of continuing until you are now, just left with the, them. Now, Kong here is just a button. Kong's a bambooita. Yeah. He's a vegetarian. And in our original animatic of yeah. this, he's actually chewing on a dinosaur. But Andy Circus was very, very adamant. It was one of the, of the times that Andy really mm. had a very strong opinion about the character. I mean, he's always got strong opinions, but he was very, very adamant that Kong wouldn't be a carnivore, shouldn't be a carnivore, right. shouldn't eat dinosaurs. So this bamboo was... Um, this is not how the animatic is. The animatic has him chewing on a dinosaur carcass. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's good too because you never... It's, it's, it's also... He was he was never taking these girls to eat them either. It wasn't like... No. They were being... He's not a meat eater, no. 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 The, 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 the taking of the... The victims, it was all just a, a ritual and a sacrifice. There's a big spider we just threw in I there. Remember. We, I don't like spiders, and I, but I like putting them into movies. <laughs> it's just another part of the wildlife. I just wanted Skull Island to be teeming with horrible bugs and things. Yeah. So this sequence here was an absolute nightmare of a scene, really. I think out of the whole movie... It was probably the most difficult scene to conceive. Certainly, you know, not easy to shoot it, mm. but in a way, the shooting of it was sort of, you know, it was it was wasn't as hard as just figuring out exactly the tone. And Naomi does a brilliant job in the sense that, you know, she had to just pitch it in the on the right level. Um, you know, when this, this whole business about how she figures out how she figures yeah. out her survival, yeah, because it is the turning point yep. for her character. It's the point where she stops being a, a, a kidnapped victim and, and starts to sort of have a degree of power over Kong. In fact, we we wanted we we had to know the moment when that shifted and changed. And and one of the reasons she is a Watervillian and is, is for this precise reason. And I remember Fran having that image of a girl dancing in front of 
in in front of this giant gorilla, and mm. and, and she saves herself, which is what I I like about tricky the, stuff different. to do. It's not yeah. you know, it's just so tough to get the balance right that mm. it doesn't make people laugh. You know, you're you're right on a knife edge of being silly. Being too silly, you know, and actually yeah. turning it to some un- unintentional comedy. Um, I know you wanted Andy to keep that that note when he was doing this that that, that to not get too comment that that he is angry, he he is demanding, he is still quite dangerous in this moment. Also very difficult um, from James Newton Howard's point of view, our composer as well. I mean, this was one of the last sequences that we were working on in the music score and. It was it was a tough one to get right. Um, we did go backwards and forwards three or four times with James on this. You know, he'd offer up some ideas. We would give him some notes. He'd change things. We'd give him some more notes, and we sort of batted it backwards and forwards a bit because the music had to be um, very finely pitched, as did everything in the scene. Yeah. It's got to do a lot of things. I mean, I think it? it. I think it kind of works okay. I mean, people seem to like it. All, all that I can judge it on is audiences seem to react in the right way. But and they believe it too, which is good. They believe a connection is beginning to be formed. I think, which is which is what we desperately needed mm. to happen. Because you don't have a lot of time for Anne and Kong to make the right connection, do you? No, it's it's frightening in a film this mm. long, you know, how little time they actually do have together and you end up realising <laughs> that every minute of film is precious and yeah. you've got to make the most of it. This is Andy, Andy Circus on the mocap stage, <laughs> laughing. Christian Rivers, our animation director, also was heavily involved in getting this right too because yeah. Andy had, had finished his motion capture, you know, for the scene about six months mm. before we actually did the, the cut of the scene. And, and once once we edited it together and it became a, a fully-fledged sequence, mm-hmm. um, Andy had long since, you know, gone. And so Christian had to take the best of what Andy had done but also um, adapt it and, and alter it and make it really you know, work well. And uh, yeah. I think he looks great in the sequence. Yeah. He, he's got his personality, you're beginning to see something. You're beginning like, to feel the personality. Yeah, personality. yeah this is, this is definitely. where he stops being King Kong monster and starts being a creature with a, a, a heart and feelings. But I also, I also like the way that it's, you know, we would we thought that one of the things we had to be very careful of was, was not making him too cute, that there is an anger and a menace and yeah. he's dangerous, always dangerous. And we and but also that fine line of not being like this abusive sort of character either. So no. so so he, he it was a very, very fine line to walk. Mm-hmm. And also in this scene I think Brent Burge and Andy Circus, of course, but particularly Brent and and Andy working together created this that the sounds i mean he's the he, vocals, he, the yeah. vocals you know that's he's it's almost like dialogue mm-hmm. and actually was shot exactly like dialogue mm-hmm. as, a lot as of the ADR. vocals is, are Andy, is Andy's yep. own vocals too own vocals. Um, yeah. worked on and treated by Brent Brent Bush who did just did such a great job and so this is a you know a, a moment where Kong f- feels humiliated it's where his yep. his sort of his, his alpha male status has been severely compromised and he can't handle it anymore it's, and it is it is a power shift i mean it's it is it's and he knows because, it's dangerous for him too yes he has just attempted to kill Anne. he's tried to thump her and squash her like a bug and he couldn't do it at the last moment he couldn't bring himself to yep. kill her and he he's kind of shocked about this shift of power, that suddenly she's become more powerful than he, and he, 
he didn't realize it till the moment it's happened, but he's no. processing it. I love the way that Andy yeah, and Christian, processing. you know, perform that moment where they he's processing what this actually yeah. means. It's it's, it's um, a difficult thing to get into the eyes of a CG creature. I, I, I remember when we were doing that restructure and looking at that, one of the biggest things we wrote was, why doesn't he kill her? I, I remember that. What, what, why doesn't he kill her? Mm. And, and, and I guess that scene was what, what that, answering that question and, and forming that bond. So here we are, we're in the swamp scene. And uh, the swamp scene, I, you know, I wanted to have... Um, it's spooky, but there were some great designs that were done very early uh, by Gus Hunter at Weta Workshop that showed these big trees, these big overscale trees um, sticking out of the surface of the swamp. It, it made the uh, the island feel ancient, and um, and the humans feel very uh, very very vulnerable and um, almost incidental. And so I I kept this big tree idea. It's actually quite a Lord of the Ringsy, almost like the Lothlorien trees um, mm. size. And then the, this is this is my favourite little bug design actually in all the movie. Are these little scorpion, uh, sort of like little scorpion crabs? Um, and this is a you know a, a, an attack that we did. That it's like a a gag thing where you are saving your you know the big monster but you're making audiences <laughs> think that this might be the uh this, this is might the worst be of it, it. <laughs> this is as bad as it gets but no it's about to get a whole lot worse yeah the, this um was uh, shot in, the, in, a, in a big tank that we built in our studio backlot it's the same tank that we use for the coastline of skull island um we don't, we don't have, in New Zealand, we don't have, you know, big film tanks like they do in some large studios around the world. But, uh, you know, we've discovered that it doesn't really matter because a tank of water is easy enough to build. You just build a concrete wall mm. and some sandbags and and put it in the parking lot. And the, right. the parking lot basically is the bottom of the tank and uh, it's about three foot deep and allowed us to do everything that we needed to do. And this is the Pyranodon, right? No, this What's is the... this is um well this is just a big fishy a big fishy monster. The, the pteranodon is the flying creature from the original film, which um but this has got uh, this this is a, a made up creature. Yeah, no, sorry, I thought I thought it was called a pteranodon or something as as named by Billy. Oh, Billy okay. Jackson, yeah. oh all right. Yeah, 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 he yeah. came up with some great dinosaur names. Right, right. Oh, yeah. pteranodon. I see, like the piranha fish, but yeah. a, but a prehistoric version. Oh, yeah. that's, that's pretty cool. I just we just used to call it the swamp monster. Yeah. <laughs> Ah, this was this was interesting. This is about Jack, yeah, being weighted down. Yeah, and and with the way we shot this is the same as all of our underwater scenes on the Lord of the Rings movies. Is we shot it dry for wet, is what it's called, where the actors don't go in the water at all, but they're suspended on cables, and you use slow motion photography and put a lot of bubbles in, and um, and it does look very realistic. It does look very much like underwater footage, but nobody gets wet. It's kind of interesting because their hair isn't getting wet. So you've got to have fans, big powerful fans blowing their hair around mm -hmm. so that it looks like it's floating in the water. Um, it's sort of interesting, but you, you do get away with it. Yeah. Just about. And I, I, I like the idea of uh, the underneath the swamp and the monster and it's just 
to me it's like primal fear it's the things that mm. we're all scared of yeah we're all scared of sinking to the bottom and not being able to get out And so, you know, um, this this is a, a lot of shooting that Adrian's doing here. I mean, we're just lo looking at all the slow motion um, stuff, but it took quite a long time, and and most of it was uh, directed by Randy Cook. Uh, most of the underwater scenes were, were Randy. I think, you know, Randy and Adrian went off and probably disappeared yeah. for two or three days to shoot that because it's very slow going. It takes a long time to get that stuff right. Yeah. And then we're back on the surface of our tank again, and... Uh, it, water effects are, are traditionally really difficult to do. It's um, you know the interaction between a CG character and the water, but it's getting a little bit easier. I shouldn't use the word easy. I hate using the word easy, but it's getting you know the software exists now and and techniques have been developed to allow the interaction and have sort of artificial CG water and things. It's um, but the scum on top of the the lake is actually just green sawdust. Just uh, dyed sawdust and... It's all about the camera Holistine, here. yep. This, this was one of the sequences again, how important that camera is to yes. Denim. More important than Preston. <laughs> well, yeah, but Denim's being, you know, doing what he needs to do here, being quite heroic in order to save his camera. <laughs> yeah. So the guys are just crawling out and um, onto the parking lot with some rubber trees. If you look closely, I know that you, you can see a couple of these trees wobble and shake when people are walking around because they're really just just rubber. And I know that there was a couple of shots where... Right. You might see a little wobble or tremor <laughs> in the rubber tree. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, nasty yeah. business. It's a great sequence. It's great that it's it's going to be seen. Yeah, it's cool, to, um, it's cool to get these scenes done and finished. It's like, you know, it was a scene that I, I always want to see the scenes and it's yeah. frustrating when they don't end up in the movie because you you can't finish the effects. You The scene's only sort of half there and uh, so it's great. And then we're joining Anne and this is obviously new footage too that people won't have seen before. Um, more sort of more stuff of her alone in the jungle and uh, separated from Kong. Mm -hmm. Most of this is the Kong stage, this this one? This is all, um, yeah, this is, these jungles are all inside the studio. Mm -hmm. They're all against blue screen. Uh, that was a, you know, I wanted to give the film a slightly stylized feeling. I wanted our jungles to, f to be related a little bit to the 1933 jungles and... But this is a, a little gaggy moment that um, I, I thought was quite fun and we uh, we didn't end up using it, obviously, in the theatrical movie. Mm. But to just have the guys, the swamp has just pushed the guys right to the edge now and there, and um, Lumpy in particular is just out of control. And Of course, well, you know, what, what you, you hope here is the, yeah, the audience. You mm. want the audience to be thinking, oh, no, he's just shot Anne, no, no, oh, no. But what they actually shot is our only animatronic creature in the whole movie. Wow. This was a creature that we had a workshop built and um, as, a, as a large puppet. There is um, scientific evidence of big birds, and especially in New Zealand there's actually a bird called the moa, which uh, was a huge ostrich-like creature, bigger than the one that's in this movie in actual fact. I mean, this 
one in the movie is like a combination between a moa and a dodo bird, I guess. Both of them extinct now. But the moa only died out um, two or three hundred years ago. Uh, and that was a genuine, huge, big, prehistoric bird. So I guess this is the one creature, in a way, on Skull Island that's um, the most scientifically accurate. Makes for nice big chicken legs, too. <laughs> and then we're on into our log scene, which is... Um, Oh, iconic, Again, very iconic to Kong. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we, you know, we built in these extra character beats, which I guess contribute to some of the running time of the film, is obviously. But I just think, uh, you know, I, I just think it's worth it rather than have the film simply be, you know, a bunch of guys trekking through the jungle without you really connecting with any of them or caring about or, them, or yeah. only with, connecting with one or two. I think it's, to me anyway, I I think it's worth the time to get to meet and know these guys because it puts a value on everything that happens. This was another you know, very green screen intensive um, sequence where all the backgrounds that you're seeing beyond the actors are, are pretty much all miniature backgrounds for the, for the most part. Um, this scene had a, a very similar animatic done to it. I mean, just about all the, the major action scenes were done as animatics mm -hmm. in one way or another. And um, like we've been saying, the animatic is, is very similar to the finished scene. Yeah. We didn't use any big rubber hands. Um, mm -hmm. With Evan, the same as with the stuff with Naomi, he's he's being sort of held in a, in a large rubber sausage type sort of grip um, so it gives him something to hold, hold on to but it's uh, the fingers are all CG computer generated it's just amazing you know I do find it amazing that you can get that close to computer generated skin mm. and, and have it hold up still to yep, scrutiny sure is. it just doesn't look CG it doesn't look like a computer it looks very physical yeah. which is um, thank heavens and Denim has finally got the shot he wanted. Yeah, he's, he's finally got Kong. It's the first time Denim yeah. actually gets to sh film Kong. Yeah. He's got Kong in the can, but will, will the can survive? Yeah, exactly. That's the question. I remember when Andy was doing this on mocap and um, he was lifting that log. And one of the great things about motion capture, of course, is you can get weight, can't you? Yeah, yeah. But well, that's important this, because it it, yeah. it really shows up in the body capture. And I know you wanted a, this log not to be light, not yes. just to be a, a thing. And that, and in the end, Annie had a lot of weight, so he could barely lift it. Yes. And uh, had had to yes, do it about sixteen times. You or so. feel it. You feel yeah, it. Yeah, and way it pays Kong, off, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah, it does feel like Kong's really picking up something. Yeah, heavy. which is great. It's also one of the moments where Kong comes face to face with Lumpy. <laughs> yeah. Which is a great moment. I, I wanted the, the bottom of the ravine to be resemble, you know, to have a, a resemblance to the 1933 um, pictures, because there's only a few photos survive from the original sequence, and, and uh, so we had an idea of what it looked like. So these creatures here um, have been christened wetosaurs, 
which is a blatant plug to wetter. I don't know, did we never called them wetter saws in our script, did we? No, we didn't. No. I think we called them, what do we call them, Car- carnivores? Or Carnitores or something like something that. Something like that, yeah. yeah. So somebody... But you wanted something different, I remember you... Yeah, wanted a, a fictitious dinosaur because, yeah. um, you know, we have some well-known, beloved, favourite dinosaurs, but I, want, I thought this was a chance just to come up with something that felt real and believable, like a, an actual genuine piece of, of reptilian life, mm. but um, not copying anything, so... So definitely the brief to the guys at Weta was to design something that we'd never seen before. And and they ended up naming it after their own company, which is fine. <laughs> which is cool. I don't know whether anyone It's a really ugly, ugly creature. Well, yeah, we wanted to have all those pustular warts on his Oof. nose. See all those Oof, warts? I, I don't know. I mean, it's like he's got all this fungus growing on his snout where where bugs and bacteria have taken hold and, he, and made them all distorted like... Like like the elephant man, you know, it's, yeah. I remember when Naomi, I think she was doing ADR, and it could have been in China, saw these creatures mm-hmm. for the first time and, oh. and just freaked out. Now, this is a, this is just your, your classic giant centipede. This is, I mean, to me, one of the creepiest insects are centipedes, full stop. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I hate spiders. Oh, and, no, that, I, and I've talked a lot shot. about spiders oh. on the Return of the King discs, but this is a chance to talk about centipedes, which are genuinely... <sighs> Creepy, and some of the centipedes that exist in the world are like a foot long. Oh no! And they're poisonous. They're actually, I, th- I think, they're quite dangerous and poisonous. These obviously are bigger than normal, but um, God, what a horrible bug! I mean, <laughs> if you've got to name a horrible bug, the centipede almost would be worse than the spider. Yeah. Just about. I, I wouldn't. They're know. scaly and yeah. Oh, they're just the way they move. All their little feet round and their segmented bodies and their little <laughs> little mandible things at the front is bloody horrible. I'm sure there's people out there who love them. Well, they probably are. God knows. And this is our now. Th- this thing is called a V-Rex, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's that was I, that was Billy quite, again. Yeah, but why did we call it a V-Rex and uh, not a T-Rex? Because it because it is a slightly different. We well, actually, well, it's bigger than a T-Rex. Yeah. I know that. I know that it's actually larger than yeah. a a real T-Rex. Yeah. But um. I don't know whether I it's something he... to do with toy sales. Do they sell more toys if they call it a V-Rex or something? I I. Don't know. I Really? I don't know. I don't know either. But um, so Na- Na- Naomi cool. was Naomi was sliding down a rubber rock face there. That was that rock was made out of rubber that she was going down. She did do imagine. it though, didn't she? That was yeah, yeah, no, that was, that was yeah, that was for the most part her. And this was filmed on a Saturday. I remember sometimes you know scenes pop up into your head, and I remember this was on a, um, filmed on a very quiet Saturday. It was just Naomi all by herself because we're obviously into into sequences now where we're just filming Naomi and no mm-hmm. other actor. And um, you know you have these quite quiet days on set because there's no one else around much. There's mm. Naomi. There's a fairly small crew. Andy would be there when Kong was on. Andy would would show up whenever Kong was needed. Yeah. But apart from that. This is all just Naomi imagining things in her head. She didn't have any, any big, um, you know, T Rex heads to react to or anything. She was just looking at a, at a mark and, and, doing it all with her own performance. I do like this shot. I must admit, I'm, and I like what Weta did. I never asked for them, but I got this great surprise when they showed it to me. They had these little parasitic bug things cleaning its teeth. You know, <laughs> uh, um, like like the little moths are cleaning out the gums of the T-Rex. 
And now, I like, which... like the sound. I like the sound of the clumping jaws too, like a great big trap being shut. That first, that first V-Rex was 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 the baby, yeah. Is um, this the dad or the? Because they are a family. I never knew. They're they? a family. Yeah, they're a mother, father, and, and a I son. I think this is the dad, I, and I then the mum turns never up. Can't tell the difference. I'm, they are different, but yeah. I've always got confused about which is which. One they call the matriarch. Yeah, I think she turns up last. Right. I think that. And they... one was called the um, juvenile. That's the juvenile, isn't it? That's the juvenile. Yeah. This guy here looks yeah. like he's a juvenile. Smaller than dad. Yeah, he's just a growing little growing chap who's trying to eat as much meat as he can as quickly as he can, so he gets to be big and strong like his like his dad. And. What is so funny about this is this moment is I've, ever since I've known you has sat in your office at, at Power Street. Yeah, well, it was fantastic. a statue. It was this. It's this. This marquette we call it, and uh, and for such a long time, all the way through Lord of the Rings, all that really tangibly existed from our failed attempt to make Kong in '96 was this large bronze-coloured sculpture of this. Exact sequence about about now, isn't it? Or yeah. it's about this sequence about now, somewhere in yeah. there, where he's got all three of them Coming on at him, him at once, and um, and we had this amazing bronze that was sculpted by the Weta guys in '96, and you know it was there, and it was our only surviving sort of sort of relic or souvenir of our period spent on the film, and unless you know, unless we were going to do what happened, which is to make it again, that would yeah. have been it for Kong. And you wanted it that he's fought these guys before, didn't you? Well, I that, imagine the he... island's small enough that he's fought most yeah. creatures before. I mean, I, but I would imagine that the T-Rexes and him are continually jockeying for dominance. You right. Know, what I would imagine is that, like, he always encounters these things and it's a real, you know, alpha male yep. kind of struggle to, to dominate the island. And and they gave him those scars. I mean, something gave him yes. the scars. Yeah, yeah, probably the old man yeah. dinosaur, probably the yeah. father. Because yeah, Kong has been definitely wounded and brutalised at, at numerous times, yeah. and he's getting a picking up a whole bunch of new scars now. And he's <laughs> yeah. punching. He must have a fairly deep puncture marks in his arm. Yeah. Right the way through the muscle would be bloody sore. This uh, landscape is, is, I've always thought this was terrific. Again, came from very early um, conceptual art that uh, Gus and Jeremy did, just paintings. I know that we did it. We did a pass. One of the very first things ever for Kong uh, was a was just a painting pass of Skull Island, where they created art. And when I say mm. painting, they did, they do it on Photoshop. It's not they don't use physically use paintbrushes anymore. They use a computer, but they. They created some images of Kong and um, the dinosaur fighting mm -hmm. that were images that really set the the design look from the very from from day one, literally day one. Mm -hmm. uh. This was a great moment. Mm. So, that was in the previs, or I can't remember. Or yeah. did you come up with that afterwards? Oh no, all this was very heavily previs. Yeah, Again, you can't do a scene like this without prevising it. No. I mean, you literally, if you, if you imagine, you know, being a director trying to shoot this, you, you literally have nothing to shoot other than Naomi in a blue screen. And so, unless you have a plan, unless you have it mapped out and a previs of it, where on earth do you start? How do mm -hmm. you know what shots you need? How do you know where to put the camera, what she has to be doing? Because there's literally nothing. So, but with Previs, it's weird because it's not only does it give you a plan, but it gives you such a detailed blueprint of the scene that um, it doesn't 
look that different to the finished scene. You know, it's amazing. Previs is a, is a potent, very, very important weapon to use as a filmmaker if you're doing this type of scene. Obviously, you know, there's lots of filmmaking that doesn't need previs, but this this complexity and level of detail and level of quick cutting and camera angle changing and choreography and intricate kind of stuff. God, I, I wouldn't know where to begin if it wasn't for previs now, I must admit. What was cool about the 1996 version of Kong is that that was being developed at the time that we had CG it was, you know, a year or two after Jurassic Park, but we didn't have previs. I mean, previs in the form we know it today didn't really exist so much, and so we were going to do stop-motion previs. And we were actually, we'd, we'd built all these stop-motion puppets um, that were going to be used by animators to animate a really rough, jerky version of these fights um, that the we would then use computer animation to replace but uh, we were go we thought that that stop motion done very quickly and very crudely would actually give us the the quickest um, previs back in 1996 yeah. but now the the tools exist in a computer i mean the tools really exist to, that kids at home can do the, this level of previs really just about now and we've just seen enough if you're a smart kid yeah, i, I couldn't right. do it but you know it's amazing how what, what sort of aptitude kids have got with computers. I, I just can't. There's a section of my brain that doesn't allow me to learn how to use computers. I don't know. We just saw the very first beat of another shift in power there. So we had we've had Kong sort of realise he's vulnerable to her, and we and we wanted this moment. I remember when we were structuring the story that moment where she kind of chose him. Um, in a way, and that's one of the first beats of that that moment. The actual choreography here is is a, is a tribute to the 1933 film too. I mean, what you're saying about the character stuff yeah. isn't in the 33 film, but the the choreography of the fight here mm. is us being very similar to the 1933 film because the the T-Rex fight in that movie is one of the great sequences, yeah. the great iconic sequences. And even I I remember today watching it when I was nine, and I can remember. I can remember the nine-year-old me seeing it. You know, I can remember the time I first saw it and what I was feeling and how amazing it was. And um, and the and you know Willis O'Brien's choreography is so great that we stole a few of his moves and paid tribute to them here because why not? You know, it was so terrific back in 1933. It's no less terrific now. This well, this, is... this was a sequence that was shot. This was shot on the day that Brian Singer came to set. So if you look at the video diary, there's that funny kind of jokey one where Brian and and uh, Brian comes on board and helps me when I fall asleep and um and, and he, this shot, is the, he shot Naomi doing that. Well, yeah, so. this is the actual the, uh, this is the actual stuff that we were shooting right at the at the moment that Brian was on set was this exact I think this shot like <laughs> this wide shot was the thing that we were setting up to do. And but this is I I woke up in time to direct it. Brian this, <laughs> Brian didn't actually direct this particular <laughs> He doesn't get a credit. He doesn't get a credit, <laughs> no. That little moment there where he picks her up is actually a little homage to some real gorilla footage where we saw a, a, a father pick up a baby. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And we a baby it. gorilla, mm. and he sort of just flings the baby flings on the baby shoulder. On yep. the shoulder mm -hmm. yeah. That's right. I remember. We, are, we have a problem in New Zealand because we don't have any gorillas in zoos here. Mm -hmm. There's not many zoos in the world that do have gorillas because they have to be obviously very carefully looked after and... The um the closest one is Melbourne Zoo, 
And so we didn't have easy access to, to zoos to study real gorilla behaviour, but we did build up a very extensive library of of documentary footage, and we would look at that for ideas, wouldn't we, for Kong's behaviour? Yeah, we did. We ended up with 20 hours of, thanks to um, footage from that was shot by the guys who went up into the mountains who did Gorillas in the Mist, didn't they? They very yes. kindly sent you there. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, that, that, that was, that was really fantastic. Cool Michael Apted um, yeah. was very supportive and let us have access to a lot of the Gorillas in the Mist dailies that he had shot that yep. never got, never made it into the film. But um, 20 that, hours of it. It was valuable yeah. stuff for us to study and look at real gorilla behaviour in the wild. It was, it was really terrific help. It was, you know, what what we're doing here really is we're, in a way, justifying why we have our main characters at the bottom of the ravine. It's like, you know, it, it's really a defining moment for mm -hmm. Carl Denham. It and is. That's the moment that his camera is destroyed. His hopes, it's his dreams, like everything. Everything goes, yeah. doesn't it? Everything gone. It's taking the character to the lowest possible ebb. One of the things I wanted to do, and this is a little confession, is that I wanted to make sure that our spider scene, spider pit scene, which, as fans will know, is a legendary scene from the that was cut from the original film, mm. cut for pacing reasons. I, I wanted to ensure that our um, version of the spider pit wouldn't get cut. And so the only way I could think of, because I, I can understand why they cut it out of the first film, mm -hmm. the only way I could, I could think to guarantee that we'd we'd have to have it in there would be to take our main characters and send them down the bottom of the, the chasm. Which is what didn't happen in the original. In the original film, both Denim and Driscoll are stranded at the top of the chasm, so therefore the people at the bottom are attacked and they're, they're the secondary characters, the sailors and, and right. you know, the extras. And um, I knew that if we did that, there'd be a real drive, a, you know, pressure on us at some point to cut the scene out. And as it is, you know, we lost the swamp scene, which mm. I would have never even have guessed we'd even no. cut that, that out and, uh, and I'm sure we would have lost the insect pit scene when the you know the pressure about length came on if it hadn't been for the fact that Denim and Driscoll were down the bottom mm -hmm. so that was a little bit of future proofing I, I was thinking those <laughs> thoughts when we were writing the script These bugs are, are giant wetters. Now, they, they, we talked about wet at the wetter which is unrelated, but these are actually wetters, exactly like New Zealand wetters. Duh. Except in New Zealand, these things grow to be only three or four inches long. But these are a genuinely creepy bug, these wetters. They're, um, they're things that you see in wood piles. And when you grow up in New Zealand, you, you're terrified of them. I think every kid has an inbuilt aversion to wetters because you, you, they, they are frightening tiger-striped little bugs. Mm. But they have an aggression about them, or they feel aggressive, and uh, they're actually exactly identical to what they are here, except these are just a, a lot bigger. And but fortunately, we don't have these in New Zealand. That's these, gross. these, why is it, it gross for them? <laughs> I, I don't understand. <laughs> they, these actually did end up being a bit more gross than what I ever thought they'd be. This is a, this is a situation where oh. I sort of, you know, told the digital guys. The type of thing we wanted, I think Richard and his team did some designs, and when they ended up on screen and they showed them to me for the first time, they were more gross than what I ever imagined they'd be. <laughs> I, I must admit, but there was, was no turning back. No. You, know, you can never make things less gross once you've got something and you think, "God, that's gross." You sort of think, "Okay, well, all right, it's gross, and that's not too bad." <laughs> 
I like these shots of the wetters piling up around Jack. I yeah. Know. It's, it is a, you're one of your worst nightmares when you grow up in fear of wetters. It's like the mountain of wetters climbing over you is like, oh, yeah. God. Yeah. Well, this stuff was kind of fun to do too. I, I, I liked uh, I liked the stuff with Jimmy and the Tommy gun. And... I am standing still. <laughs> this is, you know, we're just trying to get the, the balance of not making it too comedic. Obviously, you know, comedy is not what you want, but also it, it, it helps alleviate the grossness and, and the horror aspect of it if you can just have a little bit of fun. And then um, we really went to town. Eric Leighton, our, um, one of our animation directors, supervised these shots and came up with all manner of variations on these bugs and spiders and, you know, the population of Skull Island. Yeah. is like It's like they're all coming out of the cracks in the ground now. It's like sharks who sniff blood in the yeah. ocean and travel 20 miles because they get one little sniff of blood. It's like every bug in the island, every big bug has just crawled out of its hole and is coming down the line because they know there's victims. I always had a feeling in the in the in the finished theatrical cut that this this sequence always felt a wee bit rushed. And um, you know, it, it's you you're asking audiences to take in a lot of information very very quickly and with mm -hmm. no dialogue where they have to piece together the fact that Bruce has come back, he's brought Inglehorn back with him. Right. Uh, you know, and um and we didn't have this little bit here. This is something that we've added to the extended cut because it just I think it just helps cushion the transition because in the theatrical cut we were suddenly jumping away from it up to Anne and Kong and I think it all felt very abrupt and rushed because we'd obviously edited the length down as you can see here mm. because this didn't make it in the finished film and um, and I think this little sequence helps a lot with just um, transitioning and making the uh, the pacing a little bit cleaner it's sort of paying off the Jimmy Hayes. It story is really, here. yeah. It's the last beat in the Jimmy little, Hayes story. It's, it's nice, yeah. And it also helps take Denim to where Denim needs to go too, because we mm. now we've got a guy transitioning from having his world totally destroyed to seeing a glimmer of hope. And in a sense, you know, this piece here with Jack is is sort of the beginning of that beat. Really, it's yeah. it's him. He's disconnecting with 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 any sort of sense of 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 who and what he is. Yeah. He's losing the filmmaker and becoming someone who's prepared to to do anything. We'll put everybody's lives at risk exactly. to get out of this hole he's in. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. I think um, sort of Jack did a great job there. Come on, Driscoll, let's go. And at the same time, of course, it's giving um, Adrian's character. The thought. A moment, the thought mm. of, of the fact that he isn't prepared to abandon Anne. Mm. I like these big stairs going up the side of the mountain there. You can sort of see little tiny Kong climbing up. I don't know whether everyone sees that in the in the, but certainly mm. on the DVD here, you've got to look pretty quick. And because I we we had fun designing the island with all of this ancient ruin stuff around, mm. and um, I like that. That's like a big Aztec staircase or a Mayan mm. staircase going right up the side of the mountain. And, of course, what we are seeing here are gorilla skeletons, which I hope when people see the movie they get this idea. Uh, again, we we just didn't want to have any screen time spent on people talking about what, why the island is like it mm. is or what, you know, are there other big gorillas? And mm. we tried to answer those questions um, visually if we could. And so mm. that shot of Kong going through the cave, that is supposed to be like the gorillas 
burial ground where they go to die. Mm. Um, and, of course, all of Kong's ancestors are there. Our, our thinking was that Kong is the last surviving gorilla that there used to be. You know, he used to have mm. a mother and father, and obviously for some of his life he, he had his parents and maybe a sibling or two. Um, but the dinosaurs have taken their toll, yeah. and he is the only one left now. Just as the island is failing, the, the line of giant gorillas is failing. Yeah, well, the whole place is sinking. Uh, you know, whatever's on this island is doomed anyway to some degree because the whole place is going to be underwater uh, within a few years. We wanted this moment very much to play to the end of the movie, to play to the Empire State Building, mm. that and, and to play to the reason he climbs the Empire State Building, that this is a place of sanctuary. And although you get the battle with the bats at the end of this sequence, we did want it to be peaceful and disarming in a way. Mm. And, that and that's why they, we use the sunset to make it beautiful. And yeah. It's obviously the lair, Kong's lair, is a um, feature of the original 1933 film, and we very much took our, our guide from, from that being at the top of the mountain because, again, it, it feeds into why he climbs up the Empire State Building yeah. later on is that his natural inclination is to go to the highest place. Yeah. Fran and I watched um, Hunchback of Notre Dame. Yeah, Charles Lawton's yeah. version, yeah, 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 1939. And we were struck by that whole Beauty and the Beast story and the, the idea of sanctuary. It was nice. I mean, when I see the movie... You know, playing at a run, this is, you do feel relieved to get to the sequence, I have to say, because, you know, the, the, the manic energy that's preceded this of all the Bronto stampede and then the T-Rex attack and the bug yeah. attack and everything else, I, I always um, I, I always find just personally that, that I sit back in my chair and just think, you know, it's nice to have some quiet yeah. And, you know, the pacing of the editing is slowed down, the camera moves are very uh, subdued, and um, and it's important in a film, you know, a high-octane kind of movie to just hit these quiet patches just from a pacing point of view. Um, and obviously they're doing, it's doing an enormous amount of work uh, because these are now establishing once and for all the, 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 the relationship between Anne and Kong that takes us into our third act, our final act of the film in New York. In 1933, you know, Faye Ray's character, Anne Darrow, is always a victim. She's always screaming. She's always terrified. There's really no point in the movie where, where Kong isn't anything other than this horrific monster no. to her. And we, we actually didn't think that that was, you know, a good idea. And uh, But nor did we want to go quite as far as they did in 1976 with the, um, the, the Dino De Laurentiis version with Jessica Lange, where she was sort of wise-talking to him. Yeah, so, so I mean, in, in our yeah. movie, there's very little dialogue between them. I mean, yeah. she says a couple of lines in the um, performance scene that we saw earlier. She, she says, "Beautiful here, yeah, yeah. there," and and really, we yeah. we deliberately kept, you know, because we never could figure out a way in which we have Anne talking to Kong without it seeming very cheesy and, and kind and of you don't unintentionally need funny. And you don't need no. to know. You just not you with an let, actress like Naomi Watts. No, you <laughs> trust and rely on on. Yeah. Um, a mute performance, and, yeah. it, and it's just as powerful. This, of course, is different, again, with Engelhorn turning up. I remember we actually initially didn't have him turning up at the top of the spider pit, but I remember you, Pete, it felt like it just stopped, but, you know, that, 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 that Bruce got back or, or Denim got back to camp or to the gate and then mm. had a conversation with it. It all felt too... It slowed, like, the pace slowed down. I think you're absolutely right. 
Well, th- this scene here between Englehorn and Denham has to happen in the movie somewhere because mm. you have to have Englehorn and Denham coming to an understanding. And you either have it here or you have them trek back, get out of the chasm and mm. trek back, and they have the same moment as plays itself out in the village by the giant wall. And so we felt bring Englehorn here so mm-hmm. at least we're not going backwards you know, and and going back again and and having to have a scene back at the wall. And it felt believable that he he that that Inglehorn would get him back to yeah. to camp through all of that. Yeah, I I think you know Inglehorn is no coward, and mm. um, you know he, if he he does what he needs to do and is angry as he as he is and is you know the amount of the amount of um, compensation he's going to have to pay out for losing all those crew, although I guess that didn't really, they didn't have that sort of thing happening in 1933. It was just tough luck. He'd have to write a few bits of mail and send some flowers and cards and extra pin for all those sailors. We started to we started to worry about um, having so few sailors left that they wouldn't actually be able to steam up the ship. And um, I don't know whether that's a real problem. I don't know how many people it used to take to sail these to ships, sail but these ships. Um, yeah. they've got a few less coming back. But then they're going to be taking Kong back, so the weight dif- differential is probably <laughs> helpful so the boat doesn't sink too low in the water. You weren't thinking about that, Pete. No, I wasn't thinking about any of that. But I'm only thinking about it now in the DVD. Just, you know, it's worth it's the time to reflect this one last time before getting on with our lives. It's the one chance to talk about these things that may or may not be important, but probably aren't important. In fact, they're not. <laughs> no. This is a shot that was directed by Fran. Yes, Fran Lee. I remember it's one job, of these yeah. guerrilla unit days where we were running out of time and yeah. we had to get a shot of Adrian. And, um, Fran Lee went in there. Fran went in there with a little camera crew and, yeah. and got him doing good stuff, looking spunky and hunky. This miniature was just nightmarish. Um, it was work done at the very last second. Um, very, very great work by Brian Van Tal and uh, Richard Black as DP. Brian is, is one of our stalwarts um, in the visual effects all through Lord of the Rings and to Kong. And um, Brian had to basically was given the, the task of shooting a, a whole almost like it felt like a year's worth of miniature photography had to be shot in about six weeks and for for brian that was his last six weeks on, on kong he'd been working with us all the way through and he just had this nightmarish task of having to shoot so many shots very very quickly because we were running out of time and um and did an amazing job and this won was, an academy award yeah which is deservedly so absolutely yeah. deservedly so but it's, it was a superhuman effort i just yeah. remember Everything in those last few weeks being a superhuman effort from all concerned, it was tough. And that was a real prop he just went past, wasn't it? It wasn't CGI. No, that big skull was was a great... Yeah, I I, I hope we've still got that somewhere. I haven't seen that for a while. That would be a cool (laughs) thing to put in the hallway. Oh, God. Actually, we'd just about fill up the hallway. I wouldn't have room for any... to get past it. These, um, These bat creature things are... um, Which is what we call them, bat things, bat creatures, things... Bat things. Um, they didn't. They never had a name. They were. Um, they're sort of basically in the story to replace the Pteranodon, which is the giant flying dinosaur that mm-hmm. attacks in the 1933 version. And I, I thought rather than have a Pteranodon, um, I just thought let's make up a, a creature, something we haven't seen before. And uh, so we went with the idea of a swarm of these bats. 
this was this was a tough bit of shooting because we didn't really have a Kong at all, and Naomi was lying in this sort of little blue mattress. And we, what we did is we took that big skull, actually the one that Adrian's just crawled mm. past. We took the big skull of, and we positioned it where Kong's head is, so the big skull was lying on boxes on the stage, so that Adrian and Naomi would have a, some sense of where Kong's head was, because they have to turn and react mm. to Kong's face. The cameraman needed to know where Kong's face was, so he could compose the shots through through the viewfinder. And so we used the big skull as a tool on set to get our camera angles. But everything here is a miniature. I mean, you're looking at the background there and you're looking at a model with CG water, uh, waterfall behind Adrian. Yeah. None of it's real. Nothing's I, real here. It's I, just, I've yeah. always thought, sorry, I was going to say, I always thought this scene uh, is, is brilliantly mixed because there's so many elements going on here yeah. besides the music. There's the waterfall, there's, there's the, but there's also the dialogue, which has to be incredibly quiet. There's Kong's breath. We used quite there's a bit wind. of silence in this too and because silence, we felt that yeah. silence was going to be as powerful as, um, yeah. as sound would be. But brilliant mixing. Yeah, yeah, no, very difficult to, to mix. Yeah. Very difficult to mix a film like this. Yeah. It's an art that's... Uh, it's certainly hard to understand if you if you're not you know intimately involved in it. So this was all animatic. Um, we did you know we choreographed this sequence, knowing what Kong has to do. Um, you know Adrian had to really you know pretend, mm. totally pretend that he was looking at what he was seeing. We didn't have any people with with you know blues sticks with balls on top to guide the eye line round we we just didn't bother with any of that it was too hard and so mm -hmm. and so the the guys you know the actors on set here were were just making it all up they'd seen the animatic so they knew the sort of idea but they weren't they did, they physically didn't have anything to look at or anything to react to they were just making it totally making it up. That was pretty tough on Adrian too. He had a lot of throwing himself around on yeah, that set. Yeah, and, and, and the, this set wasn't a very easy one to work no. on because it was kind of, it was, you know, a, a good eight or ten feet off the ground and hard to run on, um, very uneven and mm. could easily sp sprained his ankle. I mean, I know that he had to have his feet bandaged up each day to avoid, you know, any ankle twisting because mm. the last thing you obviously want is, is an actor who gets incapacitated with, an, with some sort of, you know, nasty ankle injury. So Adrian's ankles were very, very important for us to look after, mm. as silly as that sounds. I know it sounds like a, a ludicrous statement, but it's just one of the things to think about. Yeah. The, th this is a homage to the, yeah. to the scene in the original with the rope, and then going up, it's like a great moment in 1933 yeah. when he starts hauling them up, reeling them in like a fisherman. And then this was always an idea. This was from our 1996 script. Yeah. The, this, although it's, uh, they actually used a similar gag in Van Helsing. We, since then, you know, I have seen it in Van Helsing. But uh, you know, the idea of holding onto the legs right. of, a, of a flapping creature. But uh, it's still pretty cool, though. Worthy of a reprise. Yeah. In Skull Island. <laughs> and they, that was a real fall into a river. That was a stunt men falling, stunt man and woman falling into a river, that one shot. One of the very few real things right. in that sequence, actually. Everything else is faked, but we did take the effort of uh, dropping a couple of stunt Which people. river? Um, a river up near River Pehu, oh, okay. North Island somewhere. But that is... That's in our parking yep. lot. That, that's 
that and you know how you get the current of of, of the river flowing no. when you've got a tank is you use fire hoses oh, you okay. get the fire brigade to come in and they and they pull they put their hoses on full bore and you just put the hoses underneath the surface of the water and it immediately makes the still swimming pool sort of like water just flood by fast they've gone This is part of um, this is part of sort of Denim's uh, moral demise, mm -hmm. where he's prepared to use his friends as bait. Yeah, um, which is where we were driving towards. I think you know that, that this is part of part of his character. Yeah, forgetting why he got into this business, so to speak. Yeah. And this was Colin's idea. Colin Hanks yeah. had the idea that he gets wounded. And it's sort of the the journey for for Preston's character is to finally stand up to to and defy Denim. Yes. Which was also a good sort of gave his character some shape. Yes. I always was worried here because I I was always worried why he didn't climb up. He and doesn't over. climb up and over. Why he, doesn't he? Well, we we tried to make it look like there are all these spiky stakes in the way, and that they've actually fortified the top of the wall with these sharp stakes to stop that happening. But um, I don't know whether anything, I don't know, I don't know anything. You don't know anything about that? No, 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 I don't have the answer to that. Oh, and there's the chloroform so brilliantly set up previously. Yeah, gosh, it seems like a lifetime ago, but never mind, we, it was set up earlier, the old chloroform. We thought that chloroform was a better way to go than gas bombs that just seemed a little bit, um, well, obviously the gas bombs in a way didn't apply to our version of the storytelling because they didn't, intend to go hunting animals they were going to make a movie so they wouldn't yeah. have gas bombs with them but um but the chloroform bottle essentially does exactly the same thing in the storytelling as the as the old gas grenades did in the 1933 film this is a, an important moment this eye contact between naomi and yeah he's not really Colin. thinking of anything other than just getting here no and, and she's realizing the trap that what they're going to do has been set for and and I tell you what, this is a very difficult little piece of character stuff to sell here because it was tough for Adrian's character because he, mm. he's he's in, in, a, in a difficult position that he he doesn't want to see Anne hurt mm. and, and you know he he knows that if Kong is is left to do what he wants to do, he's just going to snatch Anne and disappear back into the jungle and she'll never be found again you know yeah. she, they'll never be able to rescue her a second time no. and yet you know we don't want to make him unsympathetic I mean he's got to be basically you know doing what Anne doesn't want him to do here and yet he's doing it for her own good and and not losing the sympathy of the audience you're into a very you know the the the, the, the moral dilemma here is yeah. where it's really where the collision of characters happens between Kong and Jack Driscoll. Yeah. Because whose story is it? Is it the story of of Jack, the playwright on the ship? Mm. Yeah, are your sympathies with him or are your sympathies with Kong, who's trying to get Anne back? And in a way, you you want you, you want both to be yeah. equally valid. I think they are. And I, but also, what I like is that it's actually Anne's story in a way. Um, well, yeah, no, moment, it, it, oh, ultimately, yeah. Ultimately, True, is, yeah, 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 her, yeah. her story, which I think is how it played out. So it didn't become a contest between these two. Two, two, two males, which yeah. was always the tricky thing with the story of King Kong, is, mm. is, the, is which of the two male characters, mm. Driscoll or Kong, are you sympathising with? And I think we've we sort of navigated our way very carefully yeah. through that. To, it was tricky. It was yep. tricky storytelling. Yeah. Come on! 
this piece of water that's at the bottom here where their boats are is the same bit of water that the swamp was. We just redressed mm -hmm. it. One week it was the swamp, the next next week it was the coastline. And, um, you know, it, it works quite well. It, it's just so much better to have control um, when you're making a difficult film like this. And to, it's actually very dangerous to have a film crew, you know, on the edge of a real beach like this, mm -hmm. a rocky, a rocky beach, because uh, you, you you obviously have to make sure people don't fall in, that equipment is, doesn't fall in, that there's safety and security, and uh, mm. and you'd be at the mercy of the weather, at the tides. You know, sometimes you could shoot, and sometimes the tide would be too high or low. So, filming in a tank gave us an all-day shooting um, mm -hmm. with with a degree of safety that was acceptable and. Um, control that that uh, we were able to use and th this is where the, you know I like the complexity of, of of what's going on here because we care about Jimmy you know we sympathize mm -hmm. with Jimmy and he's trying to kill Kong and we care about Kong and uh, it's one of the things about this story which I ultimately really do like is the fact that we we're not you know, we're not t making anybody a villain or, or even anybody a hero. Even Englehorn in this moment. Yeah, I mean, mm. they're doing what, what they would naturally do and you don't judge them for it. I mean, you know, it's not like he's being evil here. He's trying to protect everybody from this rampaging animal mm. and yet we we know exactly what Kong's going through. And I, I think it's just nice that this complexity exists, that it's not so... It's not, everything's not black and white. I mean, there's a lot of shades of grey. In, in, in where you're asking people's sympathies to lie here. Yeah. Denim, really, is the one character that you can... You can judge. You yeah, can, you, can, you can yeah. judge, yeah. Mm -hmm. This was a difficult shot for Weta, just the, the trying to get the uh, effect of the liquid smoke to sort of cling to his skin and be drifting off. I mean, some of these effects are, are so difficult to do. I mean, obviously everything's difficult to do, but just a, 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 the, the sense of that chloroform sort of f fizzing on his skin and mm. rising up around his face is just one of those his, deceptively difficult. His fur in this moment is just extraordinary because it, 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 it's not just fur, but it's wet. Yeah. <laughs> it's, He's got water, and it's, re and it's reacting to the waves. I know that on Fran um, d doesn't like this moment, or she thinks it's a little bit hokey with Kong reaching out. I, I kind of like it. I, we I thought it was worth putting in because he even at this stage, he's he's offering, he's saying, "Climb into my hand, like you yep. did on the lair." Yeah, that would make me happy. Just climb into my hand. We it's such a childlike. We tried n thing. not to replay or, or play the, the the end, which is why she turns away. In this moment, she she can't look at him. She turns away. So what we were aiming for in the death scene, because we'd seen that nine-minute animatic you'd made, and uh, we knew what was coming. I remember that we all talked about the fact that she turns away from him in that moment. Yep. And so she will not do that when he's dying at the top of the Empire State Building. Yeah. And of course, here we we're confronting our character dilemmas because she's turning from Kong and, and she now sees Adrian and I love the way that they play this because you do feel like it will never be the same again. Yeah. That there was a moment in time where it could have been okay between Anne and Jack. She could have now, trusted, yeah, she trusted him. And it, and it's just brilliant the way that they, they play it. I do, God, I admire that level of acting. It's, yeah. 
Being something of an actor myself, of course, I can appreciate <clears throat> the art. Yes, well, um, I don't know why you didn't play Denim. No, uh, <laughs> the brilliance of Jack Black. Uh, yes, no, it's because that's why I didn't play it. <laughs> It would and have this been is... less, less than brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jack always said if anything happened to him, he wanted you to play him. I was next you, in line, was yeah, I? Yeah, yeah, he did right. actually specifically I was sanctioned, say that. I was sanctioned to step in should yes. there be any problems. And that, of course, was uh, that piece of dialogue was uh, adapted from the original movie. And as was the cut. I mean, that that's one of my you know favourite cuts. That cut to um, New York... It's just audacious and it's fast and it rattles the pace along. Times Square, wow, look at, look at that. That's, that's a, I love genius. that shot. Yeah. That's actually historically accurate Times Square, but anyway, we, we talk about that at, at length elsewhere. This was very clever. I know you and Fran came up with this whole concept of we do not know where she is, whether she's about to... to uh, to, well, we're to, deliberately misleading yeah, people. We're, it was we're, very making, we're making people think that she's yeah. sold out big time and is now actively involved in exploiting Kong. This is a shot in the Civic Theatre in Auckland. Um, it's really New Zealand's most amazing theatre, and this is the lobby, yeah. and it's the lobby of the actual theatre that we use for the um, auditorium as well, and it's this original silent movie palace that was built about 1925 and uh, in a very, very opulent style. And fortunately, the Auckland City Council um, protected it and it was due to be demolished. There was a horrible period in time when it looked like this wonderful theatre was going to get torn down when speculators were going crazy in the yep. mid-1980s mid and tearing everything down. Mm -hmm. but, but fortunately, And actually did tear down some beautiful theatres. Tear down a lot of yeah. beautiful theatres. And fortunately, that, that wonderful... Um, that wonderful... Uh, um, you know, depression of 1987 hit. Mm. Was it a stock market crash or whatever yeah. it is in 1987? And it actually was responsible for saving buildings like this. So I just think that and, was, and thank some, God for the stock market crash. Yeah, some good, great New Zealand filmmakers like Peter Wells really went, mm -hmm. to, went to town to save this building. What was interesting about this sequence is that in a real world in 1933, a lot of people would have been smoking in the lobby of the cinema oh, and even smoking in the auditorium here. Right and, here uh, yeah. and we had this thing happen in New Zealand where there were no smoking laws passed during the shooting of the film. And right in the middle of Kong, we, we couldn't have people smoking anymore because it was against the law to be smoking in a public area. And we could have people smoking in, in our studios and this is a, an example, actually, Lorraine. Yeah. That's Andy Circus's wife, Lorraine. Yeah. But when we were in the Civic Auditorium or, or, or the right. lobby, we it was illegal, illegal for us to have anybody smoking, and it was kind of tough. Yeah. I, I realised that uh, somebody sh should have thought to get the government to do an exemption for filmmaking because there are times in filmmaking where you, especially period movies, where you have to have people smoking because to be realistic. You would have had to have done CG... Smoke? Well, we, yeah, well, that would we have been a pain. We, not, we couldn't afford it. I mean, um, but the, this is this was interesting. This was this was Eugene O'Neill creeping in actually, who only ever wrote one comedy, um, mm -hmm. and this is the one Jack Driscoll comedy, and which he wrote, of course, for for And uh, this was an idea Fran came up with to yep. sort of help with the and, storytelling. And Fran was the 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 director of the scene too. This was yeah. a, this was a. a Separate little film shoot that we set up yeah. that I was shooting. I was shooting on the next door stage and shooting yeah. some jungle scenes with Naomi, and we were in the push to get the film done on on schedule. And um, 
brilliantly directed play, by the way. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, why? Was that you, was it? Yeah. Oh, I see. Okay, good. No, brilliantly directed play. <laughs> and, um, and Fran directed the sequence. Yeah, she did. She did great. So this is, um, this is Howard Shaw, composer of the Lord of the Rings score, and we're filming this on location in the, um, the Civic Theatre in, in Auckland. I, I was always worried about the blue because the theatre is one of these like these palaces where they they look like you're in a sort of Indian palace with this uh, with this blue cyclorama. And once we put our lights on it, it looked like blue screen. And yeah. I know the number of people that have said, said to me, "Oh, are you going to be superimposing something in there? Is that blue screen? What, what are you going to put in there?" And no, no, it's exactly the same colour as blue screen. I remember when we were doing the character arcs for, for, for Denim that we knew this moment of, was his moment of triumph and, and, and it, it, it was sort yeah. of like everything in the front that he overheard when he had the glass up against the door listening to what they were saying about him being a failure, this moment negated all that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so this, this is, is as, what he was this is as good as it gets for, for Denim. This, yeah. is, this is what he's been aiming for, whether it's a film premiere or... In the case now, it's a to not be that failure. show, but yeah, yeah, he he is he has made it. He's as doesn't get any better than this for, for denim, and yeah. Jack plays it really nicely. It's using quite a bit of dialogue, um, reminiscent of the the original film, isn't it? Bits and pieces yes. adapted and yes. um, pushed and shoved around. And here we are obviously creating the illusion still that Anne is part of his show, and doing it particularly deliberately because you're hearing Jack Black's dialogue. Um, so it really does make you feel like they're in the same space, so, which is a bit of a filmmaker cheat. The, the, this, this crowd was, uh, I think we had about 400 extras, but the theatre holds nearly 2,000, and so we had to do multiple passes where we'd have everybody sitting in one section and then they'd stand up, move, sit down in another section, and we just shot the same stuff over and over again with the audience in different parts of the theatre, and then we, we pasted them all together at Weta. And I, I had a, I was, you know, trying to explain to the audience where to look and what to do. And we had a big um, cardboard sort of model of Kong's head on a stand, I think, or at least had a big cross on a, on the top of a stand where Kong was. It was a sort of, it was, it was tough. And the audience did a really good job. They were very patient. It took us two days or three days even, I think, to shoot them doing all these reactions because we had to. Have, get lots of different camera angles so it was very laborious tedious work to go through all the different camera positions together this whole sequence which is about i guess it's about eight or nine minutes long this scene in the theater i remember one of jack's favorite lines was the chrome steel line well that's he just the original found it, film no, he found I, it yeah, hysterically funny, funny. these chains are made of chrome steel as if the chrome's gonna as, well as if it's some modern piece of technology it's like <laughs> yeah. it's like the state of the art and chain manufacturing i always thought that somebody must have gone cheap on one of the links that probably they were mostly chrome steel but there might have been one link that was that was just mild steel unhardened and it's a one weak link the weakest link I mean what to me is more the question you know how people say well how does Kong get back to New York you know mm. how does he get off the island to me the real question is how do, how do you get him backstage in the theater mm, without anybody knowing how do you get him off the ship Mm -hmm. and actually into the theatre. That, that's, to me, a more interesting 
that's can be in that's worthy the of other another movie. movie. Yeah. Now, that, that, now that's is definitely worthy of a movie yeah. by itself. We've got a plan now. We've got a definitely got a plan. <laughs> this is another choreographed dance. Now the, these monkey men here are a homage to the original film. Mm-hmm. In fact, the we're obviously dealing with the section now about with the um, with the the Skull Island natives as they appear in 1933, and this was a I, I thought this was a fun. Way you know, with fun being the operative word to comment on, on the sort of racial stereotyping that is the difference, you know, between yep. what was acceptable in 1933 and what's acceptable today. Yeah, I mean, you know, you obviously wouldn't dream of presenting the Skull Islanders in this these costumes and, and looking like this on the yeah. island, but as part of Denim's show, it was you know, it worked quite well and it allowed us to pay homage to what Cooper and Shodzak did. Yep. Um, but it just shows you the t- passing of time. It, it it just shows you what the what time does to social convention and uh, and and also the way in which in which denim is pre- this is a lie now. It has become a lie. He's recreating. Right. He's gone the truth, theatrical. including this moment which is coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, and he yeah. yeah yeah well he's obviously. Um, well, he, he hasn't got particularly good taste either and has got a slightly vagus quality about it all too. We we sort of, this is a... We always thought of this being a sort of the vagus version of Kong. Because one of the one of the funny things that um, people often say when they see the 1933 film is the curtain rises and there's Kong and mm. he very quickly escapes. And so pe- people always say, well, what was the show going to be? I mean, what, what yes. happens next, you know, yes. once you've seen Kong? So we... We had fun in actually devising a, a little show because, uh, you know, in our movie, we, we had to have a few things happen before Kong escapes. He doesn't escape quite so quickly. It's in our movie, nothing happens quite as quickly as it did in 1933. But at least it gave us time to um, give it the feeling that Denim had this whole little 90-minute stage routine all planned out and yep. rehearsed. He would have been very proud of it too. Oh, yeah, no, he would have thought it was pretty damn good. We decided to use Max Steiner's score as the music that the orchestra are playing so that it doesn't um, sound like our movie soundtrack, which I thought was a really nice way to sneak a bit of Max Steiner into the film, or actually more than just a little bit, it's actually quite a big chunk of Max Steiner, the original composer and his uh, amazing score. This is some more beautiful choreography by Shana McCullough. Yep. And yep, again, um, like, like all of um, Shona's work in, in the film, it, it ended up, you know, being trimmed down by me in the editing yeah. room. So the routines that were developed, you know, uh, uh, we, we're seeing fragments of them, which is a shame, but, uh, but that always happens in films, and Shona's really great at the way she develops the routines, so yeah. you can just... Use the bits that you need to tell the story, mm. and um, it, it feels still feels fine. She's so good because she she did a huge gamut of different dance styles for this. She in, in yeah. fact choreographed this as well, didn't she? The, 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 the natives, um, yeah, the natives, the yeah. cheesy natives. Yep, yep, she did. No, great, great Kiwi talent dance. coming to the fore. <laughs> and this is Julia, who was actually uh, actually was Naomi's uh, double stand-in. Yeah, yeah, Julia was. Worked with Naomi all the way through the shoot as her stand-in, and uh, when we wanted to cast this role, we thought that that it would it would be great to have Julia play it. Actually, it gives yeah. her a chance to be on camera because a stand-in is somebody who 
who literally comes in front of the camera um, and stands there while the DP is lighting the set and while everybody is fussing around with laying dolly rails and we need some, we need the actors, you, you don't have the actors hanging around for an hour um, while people are doing that, you have the stand-ins come in and so the actors can be going and getting their final makeup and hair um, tweaks done in the trailer and so the stand-in is, is a very, you have to be very patient and um, you know, to, to sort of put up with the laborious work of being a stand-in. And this was interesting. This was a sort of a, 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 a hard thing to do, was to get all of the, our extras who were not stunt people to look like they were pinning. That was Matt Dravitsky, my, yeah. my assistant, Sister. getting squashed. <laughs> Some people will know. If they've tried to call me or speak to me on the phone, they usually get Matt, and um, he's been rewarded for doing such great work by being stomped on by Kong. And these lines that Kong's picking up are a uh, feature of the Civic. It's just the, um, the Civic Theatre has these two lines. I remember going there when I was a kid and being impressed by these lines, and so it's a bit of an in-joke to New Zealanders who know the Civic to have Kong tossing them around. I saw Star Wars. First time I saw Star Wars was in that cinema. Wow, that and would have it was cool brilliant. to see Star Wars there. Yeah, that it was. Now, this is a completely digital shot. There's nothing real in this shot at all. Adrian is a digital person. The theatre is a digital theatre. The seats are digital. It's um, a terrifying shot because it was so hard for Weta to do. I think it was one of the last ones that they did. They spent like a year on that one shot. That's Bob Burns, who um, is the collector of... Uh, of film memorabilia and Bob has the original armature of Kong and he came down to visit us in New Zealand and that was his cameo. This is uh, was a difficult sequence to shoot because again it's you're shooting at night you've got lots and lots of extras it was um, fortunately it was a summer night so we had fake snow on the ground and uh, and it was still cold enough that that everybody wearing their coats it wasn't you know too bad but it was a, it was a, well, I think we did like three weeks of shooting on these streets, it's just, when you're shooting at night, nothing goes very quickly, and um, you often only get five or six shots shot each night. And being summer, it wouldn't get dark until 9.30, mm. and then it would start, you know, the start dawn would be arriving at about five o'clock, 4.30 or five, so you didn't have complete nights, or complete days worth of shooting, and um, we just slowly worked our way through our shot list, again provided courtesy of the animatics. This was interesting storytelling. It really was about about it was that funny mix. You didn't want the the monster rampaging through through uh, t through New York. You didn't want the monster attacking New York, did you? I remember us talking about how New York mm. sort of turns on him in a way, rather than the opposite. Yeah. But but you also have you also have this creature who's ter he's he's terrified, but he's also aggressive, but he's. It, it was, it well, it's it, it's an interesting again. It's like the conflict uh, of because as a filmmaker, you're so mm. used to things being a bit more black and white than that. You know that you're used to you know knowing exactly where, where people's sympathies should go. That he's either a villainous monster or in everybody's a victim, or you know, or not. And um, and I really, I kind of liked having Kong be very destructive and and you're literally you know having innocent people getting injured and wounded and even killed here people who you know ha have no 
there's 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 no moral reason why they should be punished in this way. But you 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 had to have Kong retain that unpredictable wild anim, animal edge. I was just worried that we'd we'd reach the New York scenes and. I didn't want to suddenly, you know, have some unspoken rule where he wasn't able to hurt anybody mm. or no one was able to get hurt because you wanted to sympathise no. with him. And I, I, I just felt we could lose his, I don't know, lose his power by becoming too timid. So yeah, too chaste, too I, frightened. I you wanted mean, too, too much well, of it. Yeah, but also us, the filmmakers, being yeah. timid in the sense that we don't really want him to do much damage because right. we want people to still sympathise with him. But yeah. I, I wanted him to be able to unleash his power, vent his mm. power, um, and you know, really kind of not 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 hold back. I mean, there's people, you know getting severely injured in these shots in theory people in these mm. cars that he's throwing around could be getting killed you know and yet I, I don't think you you judge Kong morally for it you know it's um it's just it's just not as black and white as what you, you're used to dealing with you know either an orc is a you know an orc is a bad mm -hmm. guy and and uh, an elf is a good guy and you know I've been spending years dealing with mm. with more obvious moral situations mm. um that was a great moment. Now, Adrian's actually driving this car. Yeah, isn't he? that's he true. Yeah, is. a lot of the stuff is Adrian driving. He mm. he loves cars. It's one of his passions and his hobbies, and he kept pleading with us to let him do as much driving as possible. Um, we obviously had to be very careful of, of, of him, but we did give him a good run mm. where he got to drive the car around with a whole bunch of expensive cameras strapped, strapped onto it, and he just went, went round himself, um, and did skidding round corners, and uh, there's quite a few little grabs of Adrian here where it's that really was that was really mm. him driving at speed. Yeah, he wasn't in that car there though. No, it was a little CG car. So what we did with our New York set was we changed um, Times Square into Herald Square because we're now in Herald Square, and in fact we're right in front of Macy's for people that um, would see there over on the right hand side as Macy's at Christmas. And and it was fun. I mean, I'm not obviously a New Yorker, as you, as you might be able to tell from my accent, um, in case you didn't know. Um, but it was fun being able to recreate New York and the way that, you know, we found out that in Herald Square there was an, e an elevated railway train. There used to be a station mm -hmm. just across the road from Macy's. And uh, it's nice to be able to put those historic details in. Um, a lot, lot of the cars are real cars. There's, it's amazing in New Zealand. There's a, a very strong vintage car movement. I, I think. I mean, I'm sure there is in most countries, but we really do take our vintage cars very seriously here. And we actually had no problem um, bringing in probably 60 or 70 authentic vintage cars to fill up these street scenes. And then we would go CG beyond that. We would add computer-generated cars. This is a, a, a very important moment. Um, yeah, I, it was, Square, it's again, a, the eyes had to do it, didn't it, yeah. in this moment. And it, it, he almost doesn't trust her. He, 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 he knows how vulnerable he is to her. Yeah. And uh, it was an interesting, interesting moment. It's almost like she's asking for forgiveness for yeah. turning Yeah, but away. also he's, we know that he's been looking for her and... Um, yeah. And in that greatest inscrutable gorilla way, you know, mm. he he's so delighted that he's found her, but he doesn't want to show it. He's too, his macho, mm. yep. uh, his machismo sort of kicks in and he's not going to 
He's not going to give away the fact that he's happy to, to have her back again, but he is happy. There's a little vocalisation in there which we, which Andy discovered that they do, which they call the I'm all right, you're all right vocalisation that family yeah. members do right. in gorilla, between gorillas. And it, ah. is, it, it is one that the sound boys put in there a lot. Mm. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a kind of acceptance of the moment, that everything's okay, there's no, you know, there's no sort of... Threat. There's no threat, sort yeah, of thing. and that yeah. he's going to protect her. And we did want, we did want it to be more of a fa- that they were had become family in a way because he is alone. He has no family, mm-hmm. and he and the way he identified with her was as a member of his family. These shots here are completely digital shots again. There is nothing real at all in these shots. The cars, the buildings, <sighs> everything are computer generated. It was scary. I mean, more so than on Lord of the Rings, we were relying on on you know computer generated imagery to yeah. to fill up the whole screen from one side to the other. The ice pond was sort of organically arrived at through a couple of different ways. Is that um, Andy had done some motion capture, which was to be used outside the theatre when he escapes, where he slips and slides and on the ice and because we thought the road outside the theatre would be slippery and he did some stuff which was kind of more amusing than anything else mm. and it wasn't actually quite appropriate to put it in such a dramatic moment of the, of the busting out of the theatre. But we also felt that the movie was lacking a moment between Anne and Kong that was a personal moment for them that was in a way the resolution of everything that they'd been leading up to on the island. It sort of it was a moment of peace and tranquility that Kong was fighting for when he chases her down to the beach and ultimately gets captured. He's trying to preserve a value, mm. um, trying to preserve something that's entered his life that, that he cares about. And this is it. This ice pond scene is really the fulfillment of that. And we didn't have it in our script, didn't have it in the movie that we originally shot. And so this is a, a scene that we went to the studio um, and asked them if they would be prepared to support us filming a new scene that we shot um, as a little pickup shoot mm. during post-production and uh, and they liked the idea of it and um, Stacey Schneider and Mary Parent um, said yep sure go go for it. Actually what it replaced was was the Christmas tree lights wasn't it in, in Central Park really the moment where we I remember we had that remember thing where he's script. playing well, was, yeah. we actually we actually shot the mocap on the the Christmas tree lights and him playing with the lights and we had that briefly in the script. And I, I like it too because in some respects it's, it's a standalone memorable sequence that departs totally from the original film. It doesn't exist in the original film and so it belongs to, to, to our version of the movie, which I think is nice. It's nice when you're doing a remake mm. to have something that's sort of that's uniquely yours. Listen up. And this is really, I mean, this is a gag shot. This one is... This one, we, it's a difficult shot, and um, for the amount of time it took to do, it wasn't really going to be... Um, it was just going to be one of those shots that got lost in the theatrical version, but uh, all of the animation department, the main head animators are in the back of this truck. I mean, that's the in-joke, is there's Christian Rivers and there's Eric Layton and there's a, um, Richard... Uh, there's a bunch of, of our animators there, and they get uh, taken out by Kong, so it's a sort of a, an ultimate jokey moment that fortunately I, I was able to slip it in the extended cut. hope that people don't notice. I like the idea of him leaping over the over the streets too. I, I always had that image in my mind. Um, 
uh, right, you know, back from 1996 of, mm. of this, these sort of canyon jumping that he does. Mm. Uh, and the Empire State Building. This was a shot that we um, actually extended at the very last minute during post-production. I, I just, it was too quick and I wanted a couple more seconds on the end of it. I remember that was literally just days before we were due to deliver the reel mm. of film with it and it created a big drama to extend it, but fortunately everybody supported it and we got it done. And this shot here, I hadn't seen anything other than a grey shaded version of this until literally the last week of post-production and I, I had tears welling up in my eyes when I saw Weta's first pass at this yeah. shot. I was so exhausted and so stressed yeah. by trying to get the film finished and I just thought it was one of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen. The, it, it's like, it's treating the Empire State Building like one of the wonders of the world, which it is, yeah. it, but it's like, it, it makes it, it's like man's monument to what yeah. man can achieve, mankind can yep. achieve. It's it's the sort of, it's victory over the natural world and saying, well, whatever the natural world can do, man, man can, you know, men can build taller and better mm. and more solid and it, it just makes this flamboyant statement. There's something about the Empire State Building that is very emotive. Yeah. There it is there. It's, uh, it is an incredible building. But it was the genius of the actual thought that Marion C. Cooper had, um, or who, yeah, whoever no, came it, up with it, it he, yeah, of, of, of the, 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 this, this sort of, yeah, nature. Uh, you know, the extraordinariness of nature comes up against the extraordinariness of, 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 of humans. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I know. Well, you see, Marion Cooper was, uh, he was a genius because, I mean, he created the this scene of Kong on the Empire State Building and the Empire State Building had only been opened for about 18 months yeah when he was uh, he thought of it I mean it was it is it is a great flamboyant piece of showmanship you know it's uh, it's just perfect I mean it's just it's perfect and and it's the it's the reason why this movie um, you know has to be set in 1933 yeah. a, a remake of King Kong because having the biplanes yeah, and the, and the Empire State Building. So now, fresh and new, this is yeah. obviously uh, the mirror, the mirror of the Skull Island sequence. Yeah, this this actually came from this moment. Also came from. Remember, we went up the top of. It was just after the Oscars uh, mm. for uh, Return of the King, and we went mm. to the top. You dragged us out of bed at five o'clock in the morning or something mm. to go to the top of the Empire State Building, and I remember at dawn to look at it the sun was, rose. and mm -hmm. I could not believe how fast that sun rose. Mm -hmm. It just rose so quickly, and yeah. it was. Well, it, it looked ex exactly like that, didn't it? When it we did. were up there, and it was that cold and, and windy, and mm -hmm. it was it was an extraordinary moment, and yet it was incredibly peaceful. Mm -hmm. Um, so we wanted, you know, it was it was our own experience of that. Naomi was with us too, so yeah. she really knew that moment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was fun. I remember us all being terrified of heights. God, it was a tall building. Yeah, it's incredible to be up there. Um, and anyway, this is these are uh, this is little cameo appearances happening from different people playing the pilots here. We'll, um, we have a section in the documentary about the cameos, so, so we won't... So they'll uh, have to go to the... You'll have to yeah, go yeah. and, and, and find enough. out the truth. Of, of who are flying of those who planes. who and what and where what and how. What villainous men. The planes are Curtis <laughs> Helldivers that, um, that interestingly, just I won't bore people with plane stuff too much. I could talk endlessly about planes, but it's, it's a plane that we 
um, thought was the closest match to what they used in 1933. And I, I thought we'd be able to go to a museum and study one because we, we knew we had to build one um, mm. to use in a movie. But interestingly enough, none of them survived in a museum. They're a totally extinct aircraft. Um, oh, wow. used by the American Navy in the 30s, late 20s, early 30s. Um, so we had to go to the Smithsonian and to um, the Curtis factory and get the original factory drawings of the aeroplane and build it from nothing. So, um, But of course all the shots of the planes flying are computer-generated planes. We talked through this. Actually, it's worth saying, I, ha I have to say, uh, I don't know, people probably won't realise this, but actually... This sequence in particular, um, you envisaged pretty much as it's shot here, um, with a, an amazing nine-minute animatic mm. that I remember the seeing. First animatic Actually, we did. when we were even casting, it was it was. Well, we, we, we did the animatic the while, while we were doing Return of the King. Yeah, and and it was an extraordinary thing to see because it did tell you the story of what of, of what we were aiming for, which is is this final sequence. No, we talked through with Andy this, you know, what his behaviour is here. He he really doesn't know what these things are, and this is a this is a no. switch because she does. Yes, that's she right. Knows he just assumes they're birds. He doesn't understand like, bullets exactly and like guns. He doesn't yep. really understand any of that. He just thinks they're going to squawk and pick away at him. And yeah, we had fun choreographing the um, the sequence, and the way that we did it originally was we sat around the table with a group of animators and we talked about ideas and we assigned animators with particular little sequences to do so we didn't worry in initially about the entire shaping the entire sequence you know however long it is eight or ten minutes long from start to finish we simply came up with ideas like the ladder idea was something that we brought back from new york with us um, you know the idea that Kong would be would be going around the edge yeah. of the building in circles. The idea Amazing. of obviously grabbing the planes in different ways that he does, and we we simply um, had each animator work on a little piece, and so they would take 15 or 20 seconds, and they'd do a lot of input themselves in developing what would happen and, and how it might play itself out, and then they would animate that, and so I ended up having all this material put into the um, editing machine, the Avid, and it was just like a, a huge list of little 10, 15 second sequences that a whole bunch of different animators had actually done, uh, but with no thought to the overall shaping. It was just individual gags. And um, and then we would look at that and say, okay, well, we now need a moment where, you know, Kong almost falls off, or we now need a, a moment between him and Anne and we, we kept adding these 15, 20 second pieces to it, to our, our bin of, of shots. And then once we had, you know, we had a lot of material, I started to work with the editing, uh, with Jabers and Jamie. Right. And we took these little sequences and we started to edit them in the sort of into a structure, into a shape. and. We slowly, the whole Empire State Building sequence was slowly built up like piece by piece by taking these little gags and that were done by a whole lot of people, joining them up in different orders, trying them in different ways, then realizing we needed bits that jo to join up things in a smooth way. So we'd ask them to give us a little piece that joined up the A to B. Mm -hmm. And um, eventually the entire sequence sort of found its own shape in a way, found its own structure. This isn't, 
an interesting thing that we we also when you're talking about mm-hmm. trying to shape a character right yep. that we felt that Jack had to go up there to save himself as much as to save her otherwise it, you were repeating the Skull Island beat yeah. where he climbs up there to save her um, when he goes to the top of the lair and now he's tr- doing it again but but really in a way we wanted it to be about his own realization that he needs her and that he needs to be with her and he needs to be able to tell her that mm-hmm. and of course again Adrian pulled it off brilliantly. Yeah, I mean it is just, it's a you know... T- it's a tough it's role, a tough, Jack Driscoll. It's a tough one. It's yeah. a tough one because you, you know, really at the moment now Jack no longer has any more story left, you know, mm. and we yet we wanted to create, a, a, you know, a, a moment of fulfilment and conclusion between him and Anne and, mm. it, you know, there's something about the, the inescapable fact that at the moment you're now in, you know, it's now Kong's story and he he totally owns the storytelling now, really. Um, but you still have, obviously, your human characters to, to, to what, you know, want to care about and want to take their stories through the conclusion. It's interesting because one of the things I had to do at Weta is they, they had me look at different wounds on his body because they come up with all these little bullet holes in him and blood stains and blood drips and I shied away from that look to a large degree there's there's very little blood um, and I just found it upsetting I actually found the more the blood was added to him I just got I just it just started to feel horrible I think in this moment here when they're looking at each other I think that always played I remember when Andy was doing some mocap on that, um, that as he's beginning to understand right, what is happening right. and that maybe he's not going to come back from down here. You, th- you think that Kong is... I think is, he's beginning. I don't think he, he, he doesn't know yet. I mm. think that moment comes um, later. But yeah. he's beginning to understand. Yeah. That's the moment. Yeah. This is that's the, the moment. moment. Yep. He knows. Yep. He knows. And this is coming. his and extraordinary he, he, he would feel his strength is, is yeah. waning too. We wanted to play the idea that he he's he his his energy, his oxygen levels, his strength is just draining yeah. away fast, and he now and he knows he's on limited time. And she knows too. Yeah. We we kept the planes being buffeted around a lot. When when you see the planes, we tried to make it look like they were bouncing on airwaves because one of the other things we did on our trip to New York was take a helicopter ride around the Empire State Building and they actually allowed us to sort of, you know, go quite close to it in a helicopter and and it's very, very bumpy up there because, of course, all the streets below and the heat um, and especially during winter when you've got cold air and you've got warm air rising out of the buildings, mm. out of the ventilation, and then you've got the wind doing funny things in the streets you get all these very bumpy buffety air currents around the um the empire state building is very very bumpy there the air around there and so we we tried to reflect that in the way that these these little lightweight airplanes are getting tossed around oh, that's right i think fran and i gave that a miss and went shopping <laughs> yeah i well, know probably that was a shopping moment for you guys but i was up doing, <laughs> you were up flying around the empire doing, state um, research Yeah, it's um, 
Now, God, I mean, this stuff is, you, you watch Naomi and you can't talk anymore. You suddenly, yeah. you yeah. don't, you forget you're doing a commentary. You just uh, No, I remember want, want when you were her. shooting that I know, stuff. I do too. It was, I, I, was difficult stuff. You're on a stage yeah. surrounded by green screen. There's no gorilla. There's no aeroplanes. And for um, for someone like Naomi, God, she's got to be brave. I admire. She had those yeah, eyes. I she had Andy Serkis's so eyes. She could stare yeah. into and did in this moment, especially, yeah. didn't she? Yep. Yeah. No, Andy. Andy helped where and how he could. And, and um, yeah, this particular s- sequence here, she was able to. Andy was up on a ladder. Yeah and uh, able to make eye contact. And that eye contact, I think, helped Naomi enormously. And and in fact, when when she's touching Kong's arm here, she's touching Andy. I mean, Andy was standing right by her. And I know when she reaches up for Kong's face here, Andy was lifting his hand up and she was actually, she was just touching the palm of of his hand so that she had that contact to play with and then this this shot was in the animatic and I I really it it, it really affected people when they saw the animatic mm. that you have that great long build up about 20 seconds and then suddenly bang that that final burst of gunfire comes in and that that worked really well in in the animatic and we just we did, didn't change a thing we copied it and I remember when you were directing her here and yeah, you said to her, be brave for him. And she's not turning away this time. She won't look away. She's going to hold him until yeah, he goes. I hate directing this stuff. This is terrible. <laughs> I, I don't... It's, um, you do it You do get well. emotionally involved in it. There's yeah. no two ways about it. It's, uh, you, you know, you're trying to achieve... You're wanting the audience to feel choked up and teared up. Um... And there's actually no way that you can do it without you feeling the same way because it's the only it's the only sort of monitor or gauge that you have as to whether it's working or not, as to whether it, you know, I'm sitting behind the monitor if I feel tears sort of welling up in my eyes because of looking at Naomi's face, I know that it's working. It's and that's working. the only thing that you have to go on is your own emotional impact, uh, your, your, your own reaction to what she's doing. Yeah. That, so, that's an... The, the, even in the animatic that moment was extraordinary. The mm. light going out. I always wanted to see the light go out in his eyes, though. Mm. And then when I saw it, that's when it really got me. Mm. A lot of people get extraordinary vertigo looking at that shot. Mm. <laughs> I can't tell you the number of people who've said we, that. We never wanted to show Kong hitting the street, uh, yeah. so we just had him disappear into shadows between the buildings, and you never see what really happens What happens to him. We always wanted it to feel like... Like Anne could almost give up at this point and almost yeah, go over as well. Well, there was a, you know, I, uh, to some degree, I felt that she was capable of stepping off herself. Yeah. And really, Adrian, yeah. you know, Adrian's presence, Jack's arrival, pulls her back. Pulls her back from the edge, which gives him obviously a value in the story at this stage. We actually had a little bit of dialogue here, but we, I, I remember when you took it out and it was the right thing to do because you mm. don't need words no. <laughs> in this moment. We had mm. a little tiny bit of dialogue, yeah. but again, great acting. Don't mm. need the words. In fact, there's very little dialogue in the third act, isn't there? Except yeah. for Denham's great speech in the uh, yeah. long speech in the in this theatre. That's right, it's not much. And this is sort of imagery reminiscent of the original film. 1933. That's Pierre Vinay, our, our stills cameraman, was on the right-hand side there. He was doing a cameo. 
Um, but yeah, I, you know, we wanted to have the beauty killed the beast line in the end of the film. Um, it was a tough line to work in, wasn't it? It was. It was tough to mm, make it work. Well, I mean, you can't really do King Kong without it. And, no. Uh, and, and and it was originally, uh, you know, our our hope um, that that Fay Ray would say that line. And uh, ever since 1996, we had it in our script as an old lady bystander says the line, but um, it wasn't to be, and we couldn't um, persuade Fay to to do it. And of course, she she passed away while we were in pre-production, actually, just before we started shooting. So so there was no possibility, and Jack stepped in, and um, so Denim reclaimed the line and did a very very nice job on it too. Mm. I think uh, he was playing. I, I think he always played there that sense that he finally understood. What he'd killed. Done. He, he yeah. a, a moment of realization for him. Yeah. That, he, um, that this this was an animal's feelings and emotions and yep. yeah, not just a sideshow. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. No, I understand. Oh well, that didn't go too badly. Um. No. Hey, so Pete. Yeah. There's um, there's one thing I always wanted to know. How. How did you get Kong to New York? You realise the film would have been another hour long if we'd shown that. I'm surprised at, at how many people are obsessed with the boat journey. I, I, I guess I'm not surprised, to, to be fair, to people. I, I, you know, they always assumed that there was something missing from the original film because so many people said to me, oh, and are we... You know, when they, when they heard that we were doing a remake, they said to me, oh, and are, are we finally going to get to see how Kong gets taken to New York this time? And I'd say no. <laughs> it's one of the great jump cuts in, in it, film it's history. It's such a lot of... I mean, in terms of our storytelling, you can imagine, I mean, there's nothing that we want to, to spend time on that happens. Mm. I mean, you'd have to develop a whole lot more story to actually justify it. Mm. Um, you know, I, I, just, just to go on record in the DVD, I, I should say that Kong fits perfectly well into the whole of the venture. <laughs> that no, that the hold of the venture. You figured it out. It, well, you did it, the math? it has that big canvas covering on, right. on it where you you lift. You know, with any um, vessel like that, you lift off the the covers and you li you have this big open cavity inside the ship. And Kong is not that big. I mean, compared to the ship, he he could be craned into there very easily. They could raft him out. I mean, he's half floating in the water anyway when he falls yeah. unconscious. They could raft him out and crane him on board the ship. They have a crane on the ship as part of the structure of the right. ship, a big winch and a crane, and they could crane him in and they could just keep him chloroformed um, up for the journey home. Um, but anyway, you know, it's all doable and you don't have to really see it. <laughs> but I guess if Universal want to at some stage, we could always do a spin-off movie of the journey home <laughs> and then we could create a whole bunch of stuff that happens. I mean, maybe they have to refuel in South America and he escapes again and... They, they, he fights South American dinosaurs on a lost plateau before they recapture him and finally get him. You could actually make a whole movie of that particular segment expanded and developed if people really want to see it. <laughs> or not. Or not. <laughs> yeah. No. no. You I'm, might I'm be on your own there, Pete. I, I don't know. Not part is kind of attractive. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, for me, really, this is the, uh, the culmination of a 
a project that in one form or another I've I've had in my mind since I was about 12 years old. Uh, you know, I I loved the original movie when I was nine and I did try to, to make it when I was 12. And in some form or another, I've lived with, um, you know, the idea, the hope and dream, whatever you call it, of of wanting to, to, to remake King Kong. And it's, you know, it's a strange experience. I mean, I, you know, some part of me would like to do it over again. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, you know, it's like it's so, it almost feels like it's a lifelong obsession that, that having yeah. made it once, it's not necessarily the final word, but I'm sure, you know, in terms of the reality for, for me, it will be the final word. And I, I, it's a great story. And I actually, um, you know, if I had a dream or, or a hope, it would be now that uh, that within my lifetime, somebody else does another version of it. Yeah, because that would be cool. I, you know, I don't know whether that will happen or... or it's a classic could story. Could possibly happen. It's a classic story and, um, and uh, you know, it, it, it's worthy of telling for a new generation and, uh, and, and, and incorporating... You know, some of your yeah. contemporary sort of philosophy and contemporary um, emotional twist on, on, on the tale. It's it's a bit like Lord of the Rings when, you know, we Tolkien himself was saying that a, a, a fable is something that, you know, a legend, it, it, it gets passed from generation to generation and they add their own... Grows in the telling. Elements, grows in the retelling. And, uh, mm. and there's certainly many ways in which you could retell the story of Kong, so... I think I think it, it it is about keeping a great story alive, and and passing it from one generation to another. And I didn't come from the same place as you. I didn't come from a place of having grown up with this, or you know, uh, it being held dear to me as as a story. But I fell in love with the story, and one of the reasons I fell in love with it is because it is such pure cinema. And and uh, and is is quite a different experience to something like Lord of the Rings, which is in some ways pure literature. Um, but Kong is about the possibility of of what film can be, and and the excitement and the vision that you can bring to filmmaking. Mm. And it could only, in some ways, ever be told on film. Yeah, no, I and think you're quite I right. I, I think it's a story in which it is very much a. Um, Yes, it, it it sort of symbolises the the entertainment form that was created in the in the twentieth century, doesn't it? The, the motion picture, and I, in, in a way, it's about motion pictures, but it does it, is, it, it represents everything that is great about motion pictures and, and why it's superior to radio. <laughs> yes, it has to be said. It's yes. true. Yes. But but uh, I I have to say, you know, we were pretty exhausted and and the, and there was a lot about this that was incredibly tough. But from this incredible cast, this incredible crew to the whole experience, I have to say I loved every second. And it was it was fantastic. You'll, for, a, you'll forget I the had a, pain eventually. You do. It's like childbirth. <laughs> I'm starting to forget how difficult bad taste was to make. <laughs> you just have to wait about twenty years, and and you, the pain starts to dim. I'm okay with the pain. I loved it. <laughs> I lo- I loved it. I, it was. I had. I had some. I had a lot of fun on this movie. Yeah. Oh well, that's the only reason that you do. Isn't you it? do. Make I mean, fun. I just make films that I want to watch. I mean, that's. There is no other philosophy in my mind, and yeah. th- this is a movie I want. I've wanted to watch since I was twelve years old, and yeah. I. What's fun about it is that as you 
you know, if you if you hold an ambition for such a long length of time, it's naturally going to evolve as you grow and change and learn and your experiences. And I mean, you know, this is not in any way, shape, or form a, mo a movie that I was imagining when I was 12 years old. Because my God, look what we can do now that yeah. was not possible, you know, back in 1970. Um, so it is, you know, it's it's great. I mean, everything about the journey to make this film ended up working okay. I mean, I'm pleased that we didn't make it in 1996. It, it you know, it, it, it wouldn't have been... You weren't meant to. No, it, it wouldn't have mm. been this movie. It would have been a different film, and it would have had its good points and bad points, just like this film has. It, you know, it would have been different, but I, mm. I, I think, you know, imagining them, this is, this is the one that I would prefer to, to go down with my name attached to it, you know, <laughs> go down the, the um, through the passage of time. And so I, uh, I'm i pleased that we didn't make it then and we got to make Lord of the Rings instead and, you know... That and we learnt so much doing that. It was meant to be. Yeah. And this, eventually, this had its time and place. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, I hope people out there enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed making it and thanks for listening to us. Well, yeah, if you've actually sat there and listened to this commentary since we started talking, I take my hat off to you. Yeah, it sounds you're you're like obvious somebody pretty obsessive. <laughs> or they could be filmmakers. Or future filmmakers. Let's yeah. let's hope so. I do I do hope I would love the idea that this film has in some way inspired future filmmakers. Because mm. that's I think the original Kong has inspired, you know, more filmmakers than probably any other movie ever made. It has that quality about it. And I hope that if nothing else we've achieved you know there's some kids who saw this version of Kong who are going to go on to entertain me when I grow older yeah. <laughs> and I get to watch movies that other people make and yeah. I hope some of them have in some way been inspired by what we've done so thank you very much for listening thank you and um, I guess we'll tune out until the next commentary on whatever that movie happens to be and well, you've whenever got to, it happens to be you've got to get on on the, the journey the boat journey Pete oh the boat journey how did they get yes, Kong okay, to New York right, we'll just we'll sign off and go away and start working on that <laughs> okay so, thank you <laughs>